Horror Cult Films podcast. I'm David Smith, and today I'm joined once again by Jim Lamming and our web mistress, Steph. Say hi, guys. Hi. Today's topic is going to be space-time tomfoolery, those sorts of twist-heavy, paradox-loaded head-scratchers, full of things like time travel, alternative universes, and dream logic. And what a triple threat we have for you today, 2009's Triangle, 2013's Coherence, and 2014's Predestination. So it's going to be a heck of a show. Note that all of these conversations will include full spoilers, so don't listen if you haven't watched. First off, though, as always, let's chat about what else we've been watching. Steph, what the heck have you had on lately? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I watched um, The Dark and the Wicked, um, which is a Shudder film. And that is a, was such a sort of grueling experience. And I'll not ruin it for anybody who's listening. Um, but it's one where there's so much that's going on on screen. And it's, I would probably say it's like a psychological thriller in a way. Um, but it's, it's sort of like an endurance endurance film you know you sit watching it and it's it's difficult to watch and when you get to the end you're just exhausted but it's a, I, I really enjoyed it um I believe it's by the director of The Strangers which I didn't enjoy so but this one I did so I think a lot of people who did enjoy The Strangers enjoyed this one too but if you didn't like The Strangers I would say give you know give it a watch if you um, signed up to Shudder but I know what you're all wanting to know is what delicious creature feature have I been watching recently? Well, <laughs> wait no longer because I've been watching Poseidon Rex. Poseidon Rex. <laughs> 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 yes, so it's on Amazon Prime. It's free so for you to watch so you don't have to pay for it. Um, and I think the, the name pretty much you know spells out what it's about. It's about a monster that lives under the sea. So they've got these treasure hunters who, um, slight spoiler, that um, go under the ocean to find this gold and sell these explosives. And it kind of backfires because they don't find the gold and instead something comes up from the beneath the sea, Poseidon Rex. So basically, T-Rex, but with flippers for arms, it swims in the sea... Yeah, you know what it's all about. But you know what? It was really, really good. I enjoyed it. Um, it's set in Belize, so it's proper like tropical um, setting. Um, and I thought, it, you know, I thought it was going to be really, really raw. People, it was actually quite good. And I felt like it sort of spoofed. It knew, it knew what it was, and spoofed it. It's not quite. Um, if you've watched the Asylum films, they're a bit more, more of a budget quality than this. I mean, this was still a. Um, you know, on a smaller budget, but it, it just that bit better quality. So I, yeah, I recommend that the review coming soon to Horror Cult Films. But yeah, that's my recommendation for this podcast, Poseidon Rex. I saw a, a news about a movie the other day, and I thought of you. It's one called something like <laughs> uh, something like Sharks of the Corn or something. It's like uh, <laughs> the poster has a, has a shark trying to like chase some people through a cornfield. I don't mind its name, but it's, but we talked about it on our website lately, and I thought that looks like one of Steph's films. Oh, absolutely! I, I think I best check out the news. I think Ross might have posted it actually, so I'll I'll, I'll be uh, keeping tabs on that one. Absolutely. Unfortunately, Ross is not with us tonight, folks. Uh, although he's pissed that he can't be here for the one where we talk about coherence, 
film he absolutely raves about. Probably has a wank over occasionally. But, <laughs> uh, Jim, over to yourself from that uh, image. Um, what have you been watching lately? Uh, you'll be disappointed to know that this week it isn't martial arts movies. Oh. <laughs> Um, following on from the previous episode, um, I've actually watched a few of the films we talked about at um, various intervals. Um, first of all, I watched all of the Pet Cemetery films, uh, including the remake. Now, the first two are completely different beasts when compared side by side. The first one is a much more grim, horrifying tale. Whereas the second kind of feels definitely of its era. The performances were fantastic in all of them. And as you mentioned in the previous episode, Clancy Brown is hilarious in that. <laughs> he's just, you can't take your eyes off him when he's on the screen. Um, I watched the remake as well, and it is fine, but suffers like a lot of remakes do. This one felt very cut and shut. There was ideas there that it didn't follow. It seemed to rush the story compared to the original. And even Church didn't seem that fun of a cat in the remake. But he was so fucking cute in the remake. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but just kind of gets forgotten about. Whereas in the original, Church is some sort of guardian, I suppose, of um, the little lad, isn't he? Uh, Cage. Whereas, yeah, he just seems to just disappear. Something really impresses me, because I know we just had Women in Horror Month. Um, it's the same director who made the first two, right? Yeah, uh, Mary Mary Lambert, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's such a range of a few shows. You know, you've got one film that's very sort of sentimental, quite warm. The other is just this quite punky, weird little movie with a nasty sense of humour. Yeah, I think with the second one, you could draw parallels with the likes of Goonies and Monster Squad, even Lost Boys, you know, because your you main protagonists are like young teens, aren't they? So mm. it does have that kind of adventure element to it as well. But Edward Furlong actually really surprised me how good he was in that film. I mean, I've only seen him in the obvious. And his performance in Pet Cemetery 2 is incredible. The way he basically turns into Norman Bates by the end is just fantastic. I was genuinely surprised how good it was, and I'm a bit annoyed at myself for leaving it so long for watching it. Um, that aside, um, Ross mentioned Flatliners as well, so I thought I would finally give that a go. It's one of those you'd always see on trailers, You've rented a film from the video shop. It's always preceding them or it's advertised for Sky Movies, but it's just something I never watched up until uh, this week. And it is probably one of the best looking films I've ever seen. Mm. It's like a gothic daydream. I mean, obviously it's a Joel Schumacher film, so it's going to have some sort of visual quality to it. But just the way everything looks either in disrepair or it's been restored, and the massive spaces everything occupies, and the low orange glows, everything just looks absolutely incredible. Now, the story itself does kind of run out of steam by the end and feels a bit too ambitious and doesn't quite stick the landing, but as a just an aesthetic 
treat. It was incredible. Probably one of the best looking films I've ever seen. Cool. For me, um, we recently finished off re-watching all the Marvel films. So, in the spirit of uh, time, space, tomfoolery, or space-time tomfoolery, we're watching Endgame, which I still don't enjoy as much as Infinity War. But at the same time, watching all the films in quick succession, it had so much more impact on me than than it did the first time I saw it. You know, first time I saw it, I was sitting there pissed off, going, ah, there's not been a bad guy for two hours now. But then, on rewatch, I thought, oh, this is, of all this years of victory laps, there's still something very emotionally satisfying about scenes like Tony Stark meeting his dad and so on and so on. However, I also watched some horror. It was Fright Fest Glasgow uh, just a couple of weeks ago. In fact, last week. Depends when this, when this airs. Anyway, so the best film that I saw at Fright Fest Glasgow was The Old Ways. The Old Ways is a Mexican exorcism film, and it's a very fresh take on a very old type of story. Out of This World was also quite decent. It was quite an intense, uh, but often quite tender and even sometimes beautiful, serial killer romance film. And then finally, the one that everyone will be talking about from the weekend is Run, Fight, Hide. Run, Fight, Hide is some controversy because it's basically Die Hard, but set during a school shooting. So it's incredibly bad taste. It's very crass, but it's also kind of thrilling. It pisses me off to say that because like, the movie is being distributed by Daily Wire. So if you watch it, some of your money goes to Ben Shapiro. And that's enough to put me off the movie. But at the same time, I actually still really quite enjoyed it. Um, it was getting a lot of debate on the Fright Fest forums, you know, some people saying, look, the subject matter, it's very much off limits. You know, and to be fair, you're looking at something where in the last 10 years, hundreds of children have lost their lives as a consequence of this. And this is like a oh, let's make it fun kind of film. But at the same time, like the action scenes are good. The uh, It's very well paced. And while it's got a pretty grim message, which is basically your good guy with a gun kind of message. You know, the best way to solve America's gun problem is more guns, right? <laughs> Whilst it's got that as its underlying message, there's still some quite good satire of the way that the media kind of exacerbates these things by giving a platform to the shooters, you know? And um, there's maybe a double standard in a lot of the older exploitation films that have similarly dubious messages we wouldn't take issue with. So... For what it is, I liked it, but it's not really a recommendation. It is very hard to like. Anyways, have we got any huge news before we go into the reviews here at all? Oh, I think you covered it with Sharks of the Corn, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, so we've got the, uh, the new Evil Dead coming out then. Evil, De- Evil Dead Rise is going to start filming soon. Oh, uh, what is it? Is it a series or a film? Uh, it will be a fourth film. So um, they're going to start shooting in uh, New Zealand sometime later this year, and uh, it's going to be a modern-day urban setting out of the woods here. Fourth film. So what is it? Can what is it going to be? Bruce Campbell. Yeah, yeah, Bruce Campbell's back. All right. Oh well, that's all right then. I was thinking it was another <laughs> bloody remake. I, I, I never <laughs> caught uh, Ash versus the uh, Evil Dead. Um, I assume oh, that's so good. I assume that's going to be canon. Is it? Is it still on? It's been cancelled, hasn't it? Cancel, I think, I three think, seasons. Yeah, it's on Netflix. I do keep scrolling to it and almost watching it. <laughs> <laughs> I will have to get around to it eventually. It, it, it's one of those sort of 
one of relatively few horror shows that I don't think I've ever heard a bad word about. You know, it seems everyone absolutely loves it. I've seen the first series. I don't think I think I might have seen a bit of the second, but it was just a lot of fun. It was that I think they sort of captured the essence of um, you know the first you know the first movie and and just I enjoyed it. And it's got Xena Warrior Princess in it. Oh, I like her. <laughs> yeah, like she her. was great in Parks and Recreation as well, so that's you know, a good recommendation. <laughs> the, the other big news is that um, we're about to get a new version of The Moonsters, directed by Rob Zombie. Yeah. Are you, are you guys Rob Zombie fans? I, I don't think you are, Jim. I can see in your face. <laughs> well, I've not watched many of his films, and the ones I have have been, well, just the Halloween ones, actually, so you know, it's not a good start. I'm, I'm guessing uh, Sherry Moon Zombie is it? Is that her name? She'll uh, yeah. She'll be playing the mum for a guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, she Sherry is. Struggled to cast that one. Yeah, she's ca- <laughs> yeah, she's playing Lily Munster. Oh, there you go. Uh, along with who, who saw uh, that? <laughs> Jeff Daniel Phillips, who we might recognise from Lords of Salem and Free from Hell, um, will be playing Herman Munster. <laughs> so you'll be keep, keeping it in the family. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Rob Zombie's music, but his films didn't really do anything for me, you know. Out of all of the films I've seen of his, probably Devil's Rejects is probably the best one for me. Uh, I didn't like House of Thousand Corpses. Free From Hell weren't weren't that bad, but it just kind of lost the plot a bit. And then his Halloween and the, the other stuff, Lords of Salem, I didn't enjoy. Although Matt gave it quite a glowing review on our site quite when it when it was released all them years ago. But yeah, no, I just stick to his music. Well, uh, well, well, we've got got a safe space for this because Ross isn't here. I'm going to say personally, <laughs> I like Rob Zombie's Halloween too. I used to hate it. Now I look at it and go, you know what? Rob Zombie had a problem of trying to make a slasher film in an age where slasher films don't really exist, and I like that he managed to keep a slasher element whilst also doing a personal revenge plot. Obviously, it's not as good as the original Halloween, but then it's certainly far better in your Halloween Resurrection and Halloween 6 kind of films. Also, I would I would say Rob Zombie is probably just about the only example of a horror director right now who you can see five seconds from any of his films and know it's a Rob Zombie film. That's probably a fair assessment of that. I'll, yeah, I could agree with that. And uh, for that reason, like, there's a, a quite a good sort of punk rock thing about him. Like, you know, he'll do, he'll do some shite films. Like, I really didn't like 31 for instance and i didn't like the first halloween remake very much or house of a thousand corpses but at the same time all the movies he makes really do feel like his you know sometimes he's doing his psychedelic stuff sometimes he's doing his grindhouse stuff i think a grindhouse stuff works better but sometimes you'll do something like for me lords of salem i really enjoyed that and that's like a sort of halfway between these two styles it's also the closest he has to a character-driven film. So, yeah, he gets my thumbs up for what it's worth. I might even watch his Moonsters movie. <laughs> uh, I, by the way, I checked out that shark film is indeed called Sharks of the Corn. I wasn't making that one up. Oh, I love it already. When's it coming out? <laughs> <laughs> well, the trailer has just dropped for it. And, and I don't believe there's a release date for it. But... Yeah, Sharks of the Corn should be. I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be be released this summer. Yeah, it'll probably oh, be on excellent. Amazon Prime in a couple of weeks. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, just because we recently had um, Women in Horror Month, do you guys have a favourite women-directed horror film? Oh. I'm, I'm going to have to say Pet Cemetery. It was incredible. I loved it. It was a brilliant film and really, really worked for me. Um, the, the relationships with the characters were perfectly built up. The storytelling was fantastic. The horror was genuinely horrifying. Which is another thing that struck me is with a lot of horror films, it was entertaining to see how they aren't scary, but this one genuinely did unsettle me and it was brilliant. Uh, Steph, have you got one? Not any particular favourites. I mean, I really enjoyed um, Pollyanna McIntosh's Darling um, as the third in the series of Offspring and then The Woman. And obviously then she, she wrote and directed the third part and obviously starred in it as well. Uh, so I really enjoyed that and... There's a lot of great female talent out there. I just can't think of any like favorite, you know, favorite horrors mm. that are. But I think um, Catherine Bigelow, in terms of, well, obviously we've got near dark, but I'm just thinking outside of horror now. I mean, Point Break, I just love that. That's what. If you said to me a female director film, so let's just get rid of the horror genre. Second, Point Break. Mm. I just think it's. It's such a great film. I can watch that over and over again. And it's just, it's one of them you can just quote to friends as well. And you know exactly what you're each talk, what each mm. of you are sort of referencing. And yeah. it, it, it's just such a great film. And yeah, I think. Like, I, I only watched it the other night, actually, um, just for something to do. And you just can't take your eyes off Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves. Can, it's, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's, everything about it. It's, yeah, them two. Um, the, you know, Gary Busey, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the ex-president, it's just everything about it. It's, to me, that is just like a perfect film. You know, the only uh, Swayze movie that I've seen in years is Roadhouse. And oh, I yeah. I fucking love Roadhouse. <laughs> it's the best movie in terms of just the escalation from a guy gets fired from a pub, even it somehow ends up in a situation where... It was a massive body count. Buildings were getting blown <laughs> up and stuff. That's brilliant. My favourite film for Women in Horror Month would uh, probably have to be The Babadook. The uh, modern domestic horror style movies, for me, The Babadook has a more successful marriage between monster and metaphor than Hereditary did. And it's got something so... It, it's Something about it that's really impressive is that it really puts you in the headspace of this mum who just needs to sleep. Like, it's got an irritating kid in it, right? But then the thing is, a kid's supposed to be irritating. We have to be in a position where we identify with the mother as she flips and thinks that she has to try and kill the kid. And I just thought the uh, use of the symbolism throughout was well integrated in, the, in with the plot. It was phenomenal acting. And I really like movies that are confined to just a few locations. Like... Uh, all three of the films we're going to be talking about later tonight. The other one I'd chuck in, by the way, would be Raw. Uh, Raw, I thought, oh, was, yes. yeah, was fantastic. I've not seen Raw. It's getting a new release, I believe. It's getting a yeah, special edition. Yeah, Second Sight, I believe. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't recommend that film enough. It, it blew me away when I first saw it. I just wasn't expecting what happened. <laughs> it's just, I, I obviously, you know roughly what is going to be going on when you're going in, but just the way everything unfolds and the, the way it, it happens is just so 
well done and so unsettling and horrifying. It's, it's a really strong black comedy, I thought. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, and yeah, I remember I was doing an interview with uh, Julia. Uh, I'm about to fuck up the pronunciation of her surname. I really <laughs> apologise for this, but uh, Julia De Corno, she's French. I don't know how one would say that uh, properly. But I did an interview with her, and one of the things that she was saying at the start was she got really frustrated when it got this reputation of you'll need a sick bag for this movie and stuff. Because the thing is, yeah, there's a bit of gore in it. If you were going in there wanting to see like the latest and greatest, goriest cannibal film, I think you'll probably be let down by it. Like The thing is, it's not really that kind of movie. And I think a lot of the people who would like it, who would appreciate the kind of coming-of-age story, I mean, it's more like Ginger Snaps than anything else, in the kind of uh, exploring the relationship between the sisters, it's essentially doing an eating disorder metaphor as well. And it's got a lot about kind of... Uh, like sort of rape culture on, on uh, college campuses. And the thing is, I reckon a lot of the people who'd really like and maybe identify with the source material for it are never going to see it because they think it's going to be some sort of uh, like torture porn style movie. And the people who go in wanting to see that kind of movie aren't going to particularly enjoy it when they go, oh, it's mostly a, a coming of age about, uh, about two teenage girls. So, yeah, I think it's a brilliant film. I think it's about, I, and I hope it's found its audience. But that was one of her big concerns during the interview. She was saying, like, you know, I don't like that this is the reputation my movie's been landed with. Probably gets bums on seats, but maybe not for right bums, you know? Well, it sounds good that it's, you know, getting such a, um, you know, a good release from Second Sight, because I think it's laden with extras and things like that. So maybe it might obviously find um, homes with new... with sort of new viewers as well as obviously collectors and people who enjoyed the film so I'm definitely going to try and check it out because you know you both enjoy it so you know and I trust your recommendations <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to the first movie of the night we are going to talk about 2009's Triangle so let's go sailing Dropped out on us. Get below deck now. Get the life jacket. Oh, thank God. Hello? Where is everybody? You enter a place you have never been. I recognize this corridor. Everything you see. Seen before. It's starting over again. That's what's going on. Everything that happened to you happened to you before. He's dead. Change the pattern. You change the pattern, and you're trapped. Nine's Triangle, in my opinion, by some distance, the best of Christopher Smith's films. Let's kick off with you, Jim. What did you think of Triangle? 
I know, I know we discussed beforehand that this film doesn't really do paradoxes, but the problem for me is that the film itself is a paradox in that it's probably one of the best scripts, best stories um, about time travel, but it somehow comes across as really dull. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not too dull, but th- th- there, were, there were moments where I found myself checking my watch. And it did seem to drag in places. Some of the characters, I think, were just, you know, one-dimensional meatbags to be killed off here and there. And it came across too much. But it, it, it did come across as quite annoying, especially the opening 10, 15 minutes. Um, but there is a great time loop story in there. I mean, it's it's like a lot of good films in this genre. It's, you know, it's the older robberous theory everything is one big loop and you're constantly stuck in that and the main plot of this is um, trying to break that loop and it does play out quite well it starts off very interesting but then once we get to know what's happening it does kind of lose steam a little bit and uh, it it just I, I really found it very hard to keep an interest at certain points overall it is a decent film but i yeah given it's you know actual scripts and material and that sort of thing it should have been better fair enough fair enough um what about yourself steph are you a fan of this no um now i love movies like this i love movies that repeat themselves in many ways um i'm just gonna mention like butterfly effect you know i quite enjoyed that from from what I can remember many, many moons ago. And obviously, you know, a triangle has elements, well, <laughs> most of the film has it repeating um, scenes and, you know, tr- trying to change things in a different way or knowing obviously the outcome because she herself has been there before. But he just didn't, it was lacking something. I don't know whether it was conviction in trying to, properly change things but it, it just seemed to just retread the same steps but like Jim said the, the characters just weren't they, they seemed throwaway now one thing I did like about it was when the female character the, the husband and wife characters whose names I've completely gone out of my head <laughs> Sally was the wife and the uh, husband is Downey. Downey, yeah. So Sally, so when we, we find like Sally on the top deck trying to escape and then there's just loads of previous Sallys. Uh, I thought that was really good. I, I did like that. I thought it was really good. Um, and we just kind of, that sinking feeling of, oh shit, how many times has this gone on before? You know, because we're with her in that one moment of, she's the same, Jess is it, the main character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Jess we're with from the beginning is the one that, you know, obviously we kind of stay with. So, but on her second or third loop of everything, she realises this is not her third loop. This is countless, probably tens, if not more. And all the bodies on the upper deck, which don't always, for Sally, it doesn't always end on the upper deck. It could end in the theatre. So 
there's all them sort of different endings or, or what you will before the loop starts again when they, they see the um, overturned triangle in the ocean. But I just felt it could have done more. It, it just seemed to take a really easy route and it just boring at the end of the day I, it could have done so much more it could have had so much more mystery or thriller element to it it started off very well and then they boarded the ship I like that and the bits where it kind of started falling apart was when she first hears the keys being dropped and then she goes oh these are mine yeah I, I after think that it once, just kind of went a bit downhill yeah once she realises it's herself that they're up against it does kind of start um, you know, it, 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 as you say, it starts going downhill. But the thing I noticed with the keys is um, if she hadn't have dropped the keys in the first place, would she have even had them? Because she goes, oh, those are my keys, and picks them up, and then she's got them. And then later on, it turns out she's the one that dropped them in the first place. Ah, so there is actually <laughs> a paradox in this film. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, I'm actually, I actually really quite enjoyed this film. This is the second time I've seen it. And uh, for me, what this did really well is it it had a, a, a good complex plot going on through it, right? As Jim said, it's uh, it, it has a well worked out time loop going on here, and I like that there's a lot of quite rewarding scenes where you see a setup come in, and also bits where she's trying to fight against it, but then the exact same thing starts to happen again, right? And I thought that was worked into the plot brilliantly i also thought that it did a good job of grounding the story in something emotional it grounds it in the idea that she just wants to get back to her son it's important that we have something like this as a motivation because i think something these films these sorts of films tend to do and i'll be seeing this about one of them later on is they sometimes run the risk of wanting to be clever rather than having good drama to it the light of this did have something at its core at the same time, I would agree that the other characters were not particularly particularly likable. I quite like Greg, who is obviously very much in the friend zone. I liked that he immediately ditched Heather as soon as uh, mm-hmm. they try and do the setup. You know, he runs out to uh, to see Jess, and I did like that there was always something slightly uh, mysterious from the from the beginning. You know, when she's like, "Oh, my kids at school now." We know from that that her kid's obviously not at school. We know something's just happened. But we don't know that she's just killed him. And I thought, once you reach the end, and then obviously we've got, we've got it starting all over again, I like to reveal that we see that she's not actually the great mum that she's been trying to imply up until this point. You know, we see at the beginning where she's saying, oh, when I have a scary dream, you know, I try and think of something else, pretend it's something else going on, right? And then we see her do just that later on, when the thing that she's doing there is ignoring that she presumably killed her kid. And I assume the kid was the one who was originally in the back of her car when she crashed the car. So what, she'd have died originally. And then the ferryman's like, oh, I'm taking you back again, because, you know, it's the ferryman for the river Styx. Like, I think they worked that Greek mythology stuff into Hmm. it quite well as well. You know, they're like, okay, well, like uh, Sisyphus, who they mentioned in the dialogue, you know, she's doomed to be doing this arduous task, this horrific thing, yeah, over yeah. and over again. Like, I loved where that sequence where she looks over the edge and sees the birds, and it's, no, you haven't won. In fact, funnily enough, the day that I watched this, a dead bird fell out of the sky a few feet away from me when I was uh, walking back <laughs> home. I looked at it and thought, oh, wow, this is... Uh... <laughs> 
It's a strange coincidence. Bad omen, that. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but yes, I thought there's a lot, there's a lot to like about this. Uh, Steph, I believe you said that um, cruise liners freak you out, don't they? Yeah, not, not like a busy cruise liner, so not like, you know, cruising with Jane McDonald, you know, that's quite enjoyable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> another one for Ross to pull me up on when he gets back. No, but abandoned cruise liners. That is so eerie, just corridor after corridor, especially if they're all identical. And then going into, like, the hall, you know, and where maybe, like, the dining room area or what have you, it's just big and empty, and it's all on water in the middle of an ocean of this... It's probably, you know, it's a good job I was, you know, I don't plan on ever going on a cruise um, or anything like that. It's just mm, eerie. And, you know, playing the video games like that where you're on a, on a liner, that's them are not enjoyable either. But I just think maybe because it's, they're so big and so empty that you just don't know what's hiding in any of them rooms. And, yeah, I, uh, I get that because, I mean, they, they show it looking like a, they're rats in a maze when they first board it, don't they? Um, they're walking around each corner, going down corridors, basically just winging it. And it does add to that kind of imposing atmosphere, doesn't it? Yeah, and I suppose it's one of the sort of ultimate no-way-out scenarios, you know? You can't really run anywhere when you're on a cruise liner. Yeah. Uh, you can hide, but if someone's after you with a cruise liner, they know that cruise liner, you're fucked. And this brings me to some of the sort of stock and slash elements I think worked well. Particularly because it's quite novel seeing this from a perspective of someone who's doing the killing. Now, there's a couple of references to classic films. The bag in the head, I assume, is meant to be Jason. And, of course, Room 237 makes an appearance in this. I was going to add that. I noticed <laughs> that. I mean, if it's, oh, like I said, I've only watched it once. But, I, I yeah, I noticed that and I thought, hey. I'm going to mention that on the podcast, but you beat me to it. (laughs) (laughs) And there's also some quite good set pieces. I enjoyed seeing the the fight that kept on coming up. That shooting scene, you know, where we see that from both sides. And Melissa George, credit to her, she does a fantastic job of looking confused. (laughs) (laughs) But it's an intimate bond between us and the character, because we discover the narrative with her. We discover the time loop with her. And... You know, despite that we later find out that she's uh, that she killed her kid, at the same time we still we sympathise with her all the way through it. Um, I thought I thought she I thought she was brilliant. I don't think I've seen her in anything else that's particularly remarkable. I believe she's in Home Away at one point. Yeah, that's where I remember her from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I think what maybe soured it for me was the ending when it does turn out that she isn't you know as you say the great man she makes herself out to be but why did she need to batter herself to death surely if she had just hung back everything would be all right but then it's the whole time thing isn't it i guess she sees maybe how she was treating her kid and hates that side of her and therefore you know comes out the shed with that hammer Mm. but yeah i just kind of dislike the character a little more and obviously we're, we're on this constant merry-go-round basically uh surely i mean obviously it's going through a bit of a traumatic time but you would have some recollection of what's going on surely point of the loop starts is presumably once she leaves the cab here and you know she's in denial about what she did with her kids because i mean it's not properly said but I, i guess what we can go with is that 
you know, she was driving fast afterwards. She mm. wasn't thinking, and presumably she died in the car in the crash. Kid was possibly the boot, but she died in the crash. And uh, you know, I guess the film's about yeah, her coming to terms with what she did. I mean, we've got that one of the awkward bits of symbolism, and I hate when films do this because, and some very good films do do this as well. It's when she's looking at the mirror, reflecting upon herself, and going like, oh, you know. Um, see what you're capable of and stuff and uh, that irritated me it was a bit too too in your face and there was that uh, mirror that had three faces three reflections mm. and of course there was three different versions of it in the film triangle so <laughs> and in the film's poster as well yeah there is yeah, yeah I've noticed that as well yeah. <laughs> um, the taxi driver uh, very Norman Bates vibes from him I've got to say just, I assume he's the uh, ferryman you were yeah. referring to previously. He just kind of stalks up behind her. So you need a ride then? <laughs> You're there to carry her through to the afterlife. Yeah. I'm not going to pretend for a moment that I know anything about Greek mythology. This is a Wikipedia job. <laughs> Ten minutes uh, I, I get recording. most of my knowledge from films and video games anyway. So probably <laughs> as much as uh, in the know. And then when I was watching, I thought, you know, you know, is she just already in hell and this is what she has to do over and over again? Is relive, you know, probably the worst thing she did in her life, you know, because if you watch, you know, if you watch films and that or series, I just bring up Lucifer because that was probably one of the most recent things I've seen that deals with hell and things like that and you just relive scenes over and over again and no matter how much you try to change them, it doesn't affect anything so i kind of thought well maybe it's kind of like that um and then especially with like you know sort of like the ferryman sort of thing and then how whatever she does it still doesn't have an effect and she's just going to keep on looping around and you know and clearly she's a she was a bad mother being awful to a child so that you know through guilt through that and she's trying to redeem herself but knows that it's too late really the damage is done. Yeah, and I think that's the kind of powerful element of it for me. Like when she stops herself and then you know, kill well, kills herself and then runs out with the kid, you've almost got this uh, sense of okay, she's completed or she's reversed the loop here. She's uh, she's saved her kid now. Is this going to go okay? And then it's like, well, no. As soon as she chucks a bird over, you see the birds. There's this brilliant sense of just doom about it, you know. Yeah, yeah. She's nothing mm. she can do here. This is her personal hell she's stuck in, of uh, constantly reaching a point where she thinks she can save her kid and then being reminded of a horrible thing that she did. I saw uh, Christopher Smith was talking about the ending. He was talking about how he wanted to leave it open for interpretation of what's really going on here. Like, is this a case of... Like, is this just meant to be working on a metaphorical level, like it's a character losing it? Or is this... Um, all about the Barmida Triangle. You know, is this actually something supernatural going on? The thing is, it doesn't really matter one way or the other because the primary emotion that's fueling it is, uh, or primary emotions are grief and guilt, you know? And I enjoyed that it was grounded within that. In terms of some bad things about it, the location I thought was really interesting, but it was also completely incidental to the plot. There's no reason that it couldn't have been like an abandoned factory, and you'd still have the exact same film, you know? Like, it felt like there was, there was a missing step, something to really... And maybe there's something obvious that I'm missing here, that could easily be the case. 
But I felt like it was just something about um, about boats that was not well integrated into the uh, into the themes of it, you know, into the small scale plot part of it. Yeah, I guess it's referring to the Bermuda Triangle part things, isn't it? Because um, I guess you're not going to get to that in a factory. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, do, do they explicitly say we're in the Bermuda Triangle at any point? Uh, no, I, f- I don't think they actually do. I think we're just meant to assume that's the case. I mean, I've read that that's where they are in mm. a few articles and so on, but no, it's not actually mentioned in the film. Could have been a bigger deal of that. They could have been saying, Bermuda Triangle, mate, yeah. are you sure? You know, build up a lore. <laughs> People go missing there all the fucking time, you know? Yeah, I mean, because, you know, as far as we knew, it was just the, you know, the wind drops and then that big cloud storm rolled in and and then next minute you know the all miraculously bar one survive and come across that line i don't know it's like i mean i know they had to sort of set up the film i have some actual scene for it all to play out on but if you think about it realistically that everything from sort of like the harbor to and on to the ship you know including the ship there wasn't really even any point to that like it didn't none of that could have existed in that film and been swapped out for something else and it wouldn't have mattered one jot it didn't matter that she went on a boat ride with her friends and that guy who she may or may not you know have feelings for um and the whole ocean liner thing it's just like you could swap that out for anything else and it wouldn't have made a jot of difference it's just like just it seemed a bit pointless like i say it felt like it could have been so much better, but he just had like, a lot of these things that was could be thrown away in many in many respects. Um, but just going back to something we were talking about before, you know, I mean, hats off to Melissa George. She did some bloody running about in this film. Mm. You know, <laughs> I don't know to what degree maybe a, a stunt double would have been involved, but you know, she she was up and down and you know chasing people and bashing them and you know there's a lot doing going on that actually thought really laughed and enjoyed the bit where she runs out of bullets and just throws <laughs> throws yeah. the shotgun at her. I honestly got that was funny. Actually, that bit just sort of made the film for me. It's not like you said, did I enjoy the film? I've seen worse, but it's not it's not really one I can say I enjoyed and I'll watch again because for me, a good film of this genre is one I want to watch again. And I feel I've seen it now and it you just didn't have enough for me one of these films you want to watch it again because you didn't quite understand it the first time or at least you think ah there's going to be things I've missed but with this I just don't think there's anything in Triangle that I missed yeah I think with the other two films we're going to be talking about later without giving away my opinion either of them right now uh, this is by far the simplest of the three yeah Um, I tell you folks one bit that really made me laugh was it's unintentionally funny right it's a bit where you know when Jessica gets accused of shooting Greg. I think it's uh, I think it's Sally who's in the room. It's a theatre room, right? Mm, yeah. It's a bit where uh, she's been accused of shooting Greg, and she comes in. and Sally goes, "You're a bitch." <laughs> 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 what, what an understatement that would have been. But um, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. I, overall, I, I liked it. I'm surprised I'm the person here you liked it the most, but. I would personally give this one four stars out of five. I'd, I'd give it a three myself. Uh, there are some good bits, um, don't get me wrong, but there, there are some bits that just don't hold my attention, just maybe go on a bit too much. Although I have to say, I did have some weird 
Mandela Effect moment. Uh, I did watch this roughly when it first came out on DVD. And for some reason, I was absolutely confused by the fact that Liam Hemsworth wasn't actually Eric Balfour. I don't know why. Um, he's the guy that played Milo in 24. He was also in Skyline and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, the oh, skinny guy with the goatee. Yeah, yeah, For some reason, as well. my brain had him as Liam Hemsworth's character. <laughs> Specifically, you know, the bit where she pushes him against that uh, broken bit of fuselage, mm. I suppose. My brain had just completely... Like they're, Two completely different people, physique-wise and everything, but I have no idea why that happened, but there you go. I thought with uh, Liam Hemsworth, I liked seeing him in it. He is the lesser Hemsworth, but at the same time, he's good. Um, which <laughs> lesser is, Hemsworth. Which is still shot in Australia, do you know? Because um, with him and Melissa George both being in it. All of the cast were Australian, and... As you can probably tell from none of the buildings probably being more than two stories high, it was not set in Miami. Have you guys ever done the Florida Man Challenge? Yes, uh, some years ago now. But yeah. yeah, yeah. Have you ever done this, Steph? You know, Google your birthday followed by Florida Man. Yeah, I've seen it done, and all just sort of mad shit comes up for what people have been arrested for or news reports and say yeah i've never done it so i don't know what oh you should do it now see what comes should up do it now, do oh, it come now. On. okay guys let's just see <laughs> well steph's doing her one my one was uh was two was florida man dies in an e-cigarette explosion there was um <laughs> uh there was a uh, this one's not funny as such but it's weird it's a florida man who apparently he he was charged with domestic violence because he hit his girlfriend with a cheeseburger i can't <laughs> Strange part. My uh, my nephew's Florida man is probably my favourite, which was a uh, couple in Florida who got run over because we were lying in the middle of a road stargazing. <laughs> so, wow. Well, the reason we get this, by the way, is because in Florida, everything that goes to the public courts makes it to the newspaper. So, yeah, Steph, what's your Florida man? Oh, right. So we've got the first one that comes up in the um, featured snippet on Google is quite boring. It's 25-year-old man fired two shots in his home to ward off what he described as an armed and masked intruder. But it's the results underneath what are interesting. So we've got Florida man loses testicle, toes, finger to alligator while bathing in pond. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he did. And then there's um, one a bit further down. It's Florida man brandishes samurai sword during road rage incident. <laughs> so yeah, I'll definitely go with the other two. You know, they clearly Google have missed out a trick with you know featuring the you know the most boring one there. <laughs> uh, Jim, what's your Florida man? You you know you want to check. I I I will then. I can't. Re- you know, I've read that many over the years. And um, all are equally as bizarre. It's, Difficult to uh, remember which one it actually well, was. Well, so. well, Jim checks, by the way, Steph. Um, what? How many stars would you would you give Triangle then? I think two and a half would be too harsh, so I probably did go same as Jim three. I just wanted it to just be a bit more than it was, to be honest. You know, I can't believe that Jim's given this three and the Lost Boys two got three as well. If I were <laughs> if I were Christopher Smith and I was listening to this, I'd be raging. Speaking of Christopher Smith, uh, his other one, Black Death, I thought was very good as well. And uh, I saw his. He had what? He's got a new one that's just come out this year. 
which was generally okay. You can tell I'm looking up the name of it right now. <laughs> um, which is uh, grim because I believe that we're quoted in the <laughs> and this meme, not good. This meme is quoted as well. Um, Shame on you, David. The banishing. <laughs> that's the one. The banishing. I, I, I gave it a middling review. If you're, you know, if you're quoting me, it must be. It'll be one of those bits where you'll have the free dots afterwards, no matter what part it is. I think it was. Yeah, I think I think it did have a, like a sort of a redeeming feature, which you mentioned. But yeah, if you look at the overall score that you gave it, it wasn't. You know, there's probably better scores out there, but from what I can remember, it was 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 actually a nice thing you said, David. Unlike sometimes, you know, things get skewed when you know uh, star ratings get pulled. I think once, I think we were on a DVD cover. We actually got a bit of backlash as well. Well, I said backlash. Probably one person tweeted us <laughs> because I think one of the quote, or one of the star rating, was uh, run on a magazine advert. And it was like four stars. Now you know where I'm leading with this, don't you? Out of it 10. Did, I did. Yes, yes. I give it four out of ten. Oh. Uh, and I'm like, oh. This is why you should. Everyone should mark out of five. No, but it, you can't always mark out of five. Or sometimes you have to, you know. But but with that one, I didn't even know we were quoted until until I saw it in a magazine. All we got, you know, says somebody got in touch and said. Piece of shit, this. Why are you fucking mending, mending it? I'm like, oh, news to me. <laughs> my, uh, my, 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 my pride in terms of quotes was on the DVD or Blu-ray of Friend Request, where you've got the ring for the Snapchat generation. It was part of a two and a half star review, but I stand by that quote. It is the ring for the Snapchat generation. Um, <laughs> Jim, have you seen your your, your Florida man? I have. Um, I'll go with this one. A Florida man for a neighbour stole his lawnmower, so he set his Corvette on fire. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, another uh, another one by created by Christopher Smith was, of course, a movie Severance with Danny Dyer. That I thought was pretty good. With the uh, banishing, by the way, my comment on it earlier was uh, it's got well constructed scares. But at the same time, it just doesn't really build to anything. You know, it's uh, the scares that we're getting in Act 3 feel like the sort of scares you should be getting in Act 2. You know, they're not the thing that you build up to at the end. They're the, ooh, something's kooky. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of setup scenes that just seem to be forgotten the moment they're over, which irritated me. But with Severance, with Danny Dyer, my wife's been listening to Danny Dyer's podcast with his daughter, who's also called Danny Dyer, spelt with an I. And it sounds amazing. It's like the two of them basically doing like a kind of agony aunt, agony uncle thing, you know, readers putting <laughs> problems and then the Dyers will uh, get back to them and, and talk them through the best, the best way out of it. He did a. I, I can imagine how good that is, actually. That, uh, yeah. It's very, it's very wholesome. And they've got quite a good bit where um, he bring he brings up vibrating love eggs, and his daughter's like, "How do you know about vibrating love eggs?" He goes, "How do you know about vibrating love eggs?" Um, Awkward. <laughs> yeah, it, it it made me warm to warm to uh, to uh, Mister Dyer anyway. Apparently, uh, apparently he's one of Harold Pinter's favorite actors, so maybe maybe still waters <laughs> run deep. He did his quite uh, quite endearing show was uh, when he's hunting UFOs and. Um, it's a bit where you meet this guy who uh, he's, who fakes crop circles, right? And he tells Danny Dyer, he goes, yeah, I made the crop circles. 
Danny Dyer's like, all of the ones out there, they're, they're yours. He goes, yeah, yeah, I just made them, right? Danny Dyer goes to the camera afterwards and goes, see, he says he made them. I just don't know what to believe anymore. It was fantastic. It's on Channel 4, I believe. Anyway, uh, anyone else got any, any last points you want to bring in on Triangle before we go from uh, me just mentioning UFOs to Coherence, which also has matters of uh, outer space? Anything else on Triangle? I think we've covered everything, haven't we? Yeah, I, th- I think we've done it proud. Right, <laughs> let's move on to 2013's Coherence. Some choices uh, that I'm stuck with. I'm, I'm stuck here. <laughs> I'm like the dead cat, right? This whole night we've been worrying. There's some dark version of us out there somewhere. What if we're the dark version? So, coherence from 2013. Folks, I know that this is uh, Rossi's favourite film out the three, and if it were legal, he would be married to it. Steph, what is your opinion <laughs> on coherence? I love it. I'm with Ross here. Um, so the first time I saw this film was at Grimfest a few years ago. And I was just captivated by it um, because anything about like um, dimensions, um, quantum physics, is it? And things like that. And just, you know, with um, the Schrodinger, Schrodinger's cat, that anything like that is just, it blows my mind. I'm so interested in it because if you start thinking about it, God, you're into that you're into that sort of hall of trying to figure out, well, what if this happened and that happened and you just lost all night then if you get into a debate with someone about it. Hmm. And I felt how this film went really well because it, it's such a tight-knit film in terms of we don't really leave the house. If we leave the house, we're just walking down the street, but it's not like a, you know, a lot of different locations that maybe our next film we're going to be discussing and um, predestination is. And and I get why some people maybe it, it grates with because the opening scene, or rather, it, it does get better toward that throughout the movie, but the opening scene is where a lot of people are talking over each other. And, you know, if you're quite sensitive to things like that, it, it can be a bit sort of in your face, and I can understand why people not like that. But it's so natural to me. Um, and actually, I've got it on DVD, so on the special features on that, the cast actually got prompts each day as to what they were going to discuss. Uh, well, like what the character's motivation would be for that particular shoot. So, I'm just you know, just going off that, then maybe some of it was improvised, and they just had like an idea of what they needed to sort of the, the character's motivation would be for for that particular day. That's dead interesting because I think it really does have that quality about it. Like it really does have that. Uh, a very naturalistic feel to how everyone's chatting. And I, th- and I think you're right that it's because you've got folks chatting, o- uh, like talking over each other, you know? Um, if, uh, like it, it feels very real. Yes. And it, it feels, you know, it feels so real. It feels like I'm walking into my relative's house uh, <laughs> because we all, we have a family where, you know, if I go around to my grandparents' house and it's, and all relatives are there, 
it's everyone talking over each other and so one gets louder and the other gets louder so it just becomes a shouting match really so it, it quite it was quite familiar for me the handheld style i think helps with that as well because it's really intimate right yeah like you say it's all sort of like you know a lot of close-ups between the different um characters in the room um and interactions between different ones so you can kind of see who's because we know there's like a former relationship there with i think it was laurie who's invited mm. the woman that they don't really want invited who, who one of the friends amir brings and um i believe she's the ex of kevin who em is currently with so That's there's right. that bit of friction there I felt so bad for Laurie of the grounds that before she arrives, everyone's like, ha, oh, what a bitch. And they were immediately trying to slut shame her. And then uh, you got the bit where they take horse tranquilizer to make her company more bearable. <laughs> Imagine if I go to a dinner party that turns out everyone's taking horse trank to get through a night with you. That'd be bad for your self-esteem. I just love her. She's like, yeah, it's got like... I don't know uh, lavender in it, and she's she's you know she's listing off all these you know wonderful ingredients, natural sounding, and then it's like you know ketamine, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like what? <laughs> but no, I just absolutely love this movie, and it really gets you thinking. And I I'm, I don't know if you two found it, but I kind of understood it pretty much on the first watch. But having rewatched it again recently, but obviously for this podcast. You know, I saw telltale signs of, ah, this is where things have changed. Do you know what I mean? Or this is where the characters are actually different in this particular setting than the ones we were with previously. So, yeah. How did you find it, Jim? Yeah, overall, it was very good. Um, I was quite surprised. Uh, um, As you say, it was quite straightforward to follow. For me, the most difficult part of the film was the opening. The first 10, 15 minutes or so, as you say, uh, it's, it's loud. Everyone's talking over each other. I found it quite obnoxious, to be fair. And I've got to be honest, if I wasn't watching it for this show, I would have turned it off after 10 minutes because I just was really struggling to show any interest in these self-absorbed people. It was the cinematic equivalent of watching a headache. I just really really hated it but then all of a sudden it quietens down they're sat around the table em's talking about the comet that passed over was it 100 years prior to this Mm. and people started acting differently and once they started getting a bit of exposition coming it it's as if a switch flipped and i was engaged and from that point onwards it had it hooked, had its hooks in me, and I loved it. It was brilliant. I, and as you say, there's little telltale signs throughout that are these the same people? This person's been acting different since this point. And once you come to that realization of these aren't the same people we started with at the beginning of the film, it was like, wow. <laughs> that was a really, really great touch. And it just completely. Um, from where we started to where we ended up, it was a massive surprise, and it was really, really entertaining. That um, that thought it was more effective. That obviously that at the beginning where they are all talking over each other, it's like you know it's a group of friends who are familiar, and they're just all you know they're all sort of like you said they're all in, on about their lives and, and chatting and catching up with people. 
do you not think it was good how suddenly when shit sort of hits the fan with the paracut and then they start realising something weird goes on that it was a nice contrast to like you know the, the beginning bit where they just thought it was a, an ordinary day for instance an ordinary party all get together in the evening yeah. I thought it was a nice contrast but I can understand why it would turn some people off like you know like you felt at the beginning because it is yeah, a bit yeah. absolutely I, I can see why they've done it but it feels like it, they probably went on a bit too much with it um, especially considering how different it turns from that point where they're discussing the previous comet. Because obviously this film is based around the comet that passes over and be it radiation or whatever is the, the result of them going into these many, many different stranded universes and such. I'm absolutely with Jim on this, right, where I think of this movie... The party at the beginning, I was just like, that is a party full of absolute knobs. Like, <laughs> like uh, the worst one for me was when uh, when Beth, I believe her name is, calls herself an empath. I was like, everyone I've ever met who's called himself an empath has been a complete douche. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I, and I didn't I didn't warm to Kevin. I found him too smug and smarmy. I liked uh, Mike, you know, one played by Xander from Buffy, because yeah. they, they had a bit of breaking the fourth wall, where he's a he's a once famous TV star. He was in a big supernatural uh, TV show, just like in Real Life, and of course he has a drink problem, just like in Real Life. So that was quite interesting casting, and. I mean, I assume for him, he would have been like I don't know what he how many shows are still trying to trying to cast him, but he was recognisable for a film that I assume cost almost nothing to make. And actually, this was one of the things where what could have been its weakness was its strength, right? And that's this was a very low budget film, right? But it did so much with this because it had such a clever concept behind it. You know, I thought the and with you, Steph, I think the, all, the infinite universe aspect of it was really interesting. Like, I've seen this film twice now. First time I watched it, I wasn't particularly big on it. It took me a long time to realise it was more than two houses first time. And then I right. kind of felt lost at sea in the third act. This time around, knowing that that's where the story was going, it was really fun sort of working out when each character had switched. As we end up with... Uh, Amir and uh, Hugh, we see about five different combinations of them throughout the course of a movie. Because I think what the rule is, once you go into the darkness, you switch. And then you have bits where you've got them infiltrating each other. And uh, then, like, you know, they leave and another version of them comes along. You know, I like when uh, Emily figures out that the mic she's been with the entire time isn't actually her mic, right? And that whole bit was just really interesting because from a sort of meta perspective, you know, you go, okay, they're obviously fictional characters in in a movie here, but at the same time, it's weird the way that you still latch on to some of them, but not others. You know, it's like Emily's our anchor into it because she's the only one who stays constant all the way through the film. And it's really good fun watching the other characters having to act in it or watching her having to act to fit in to pretend that she's their version of Emily. And then you've got these really cool bits, like, where they'll bring in an idea that comes in a few scenes later, 
like uh, the letter that Mike writes that then gets posted through the letterbox later on. We see the photograph of Amir being taken as well. Like little bits like that, I just thought this must have been such a difficult film to write. You know, oh, you imagine absolutely. tons of charts and stuff like this for it, or like, you know, like, especially as the dialogue feels so improvised, it's almost strange that it's something that must have been so calculated as well. Yeah, because that's what I, when I was watching like the extras and they, and they mentioned like, you know, the cast kind of got prompts for the character for that day that, you know, it, like you say, it would feel like would be improvised, but how the reactions are, they feel very natural, but at the same time, you know, you won't want them to improvise too much that they would sort of, you know, go down the garden path and run out the gate sort of thing. So it's just, and just going back to like Emily, uh, Emma, the, you know, the main character, I mean, does she leave? I mean, I just can't remember just, just at this moment, but does she actually ever leave the first house? Because she does actually go out to the car, doesn't she? Or yeah. do they all go out to... Yeah. Um, yeah, does she actually go through that, that, you know, that complete darkness patch? Because I think pretty much Lee never meant, never really leaves. I'm, I remember her going to bed in, at one point, but I don't believe Lee leaves. And she was actually the best character in many ways. She was... I felt sorry for her, you know. Her, you know, her husband had clearly gone off and had an affair at one point, although she knew about it and all that. But you know, a, a friend's trying to, you know, feed a horse tranquilizer. Uh, <laughs> I did, I did like that line of dialogue, the knowing wink of "You're not the man I married." And <laughs> um, yeah, Emily, we do because uh, she does go. She she ends up in a different house because we follow. We've got. Original Emily and Mike for a bit, and then Mike leaves, and then another one comes in. Mm. So, uh, yeah, Emily's the only one who stays constant all the way through the film. And it's just like you say, we've got the you know the glow sticks. So obviously, mm. you know that's a, a, a telltale sign when um, Hugh gets the sort of cut on his head and gets a plaster, and Lee says, you know, which do you want? Do you want you know the material one or the other? So again, you can see sort of variables occurring and, you know, going back to uh, Schrodinger's cats, you know, we can either, the, the cat is either alive or dead inside the box, you know, with with the poison um, inside. It's like every time there's some sort of potential for a variable there, like the ping pong paddle, mm. it's just like, oh, you just know that something, there's going to be an instance where one of the characters exposes themselves as actually not being of the same the same variable that the rest of them are, and then obviously the more times they go out for investigate. I mean, why would you keep going out investigating? That is the question. You'd be like, yeah, yeah. Well, I've seen some weird shit in that house down the road because we were all sat in there. But you know what? I'll go back and have another lot. So yeah, just think I'd be like, oh, just let's like, stay in. But my question would be: Is would you ever be able to get back to your original house? I don't think in this film it's kind of you're buggered if you leave the house. That's if you go through that um, that dark spot, which is where obviously clearly they're, um, they're ending up in a different dimension, different household, that you can never really go back. Yeah, I, I took it that way. Because they have a bit where they describe it in like um, the simple metaphor, which is always good when sci-fi films do that. They've got a bit where they describe it as being like a roulette wheel. You know, you could end up in any universe. I mean, maybe they could, but when you've got infinite universes... You're probably not gonna, you know. And I think yeah. 
Something so neat about this concept of uh, Emily being unable to get back to her her universe. You know, it's um, just like how with Triangle we had the no way out scenario. You know, you're stuck in a boat, right? You, you can't go for it. You can't get help. Uh, although you do have in comically shit CGI the side of your boat in Triangle, which I thought was amazing. <laughs> I forgot to mention earlier. But with, with this, you know, it's uh, you're to- she's totally stranded. So you've got no way of getting back to her universe. But at the same time, it's like, well, doesn't necessarily matter because all the other characters there, they're very, you know, they're very similar to the people that she knew. You know, they're very similar to people that she still loved. And I quite like that it sort of asked that question of saying, well, what is it about, you know, in an unlimited universe scenario, what is it that connects her to these particular people? You know, could she have been happy when she finds the the universe at the end, the happy universe where they didn't have the power cut, you know? Uh, could she have fitted right in there? And probably yes. But um, I thought it was impressive the way they were able to have these sort of big dramatic stakes in a film that's mostly just people hanging around having sort of very bourgeois dinner parties, you know? Mm. And you've got to wonder as well, because obviously at the dinner table she talks about how not as luck would have it because it's quite the opposite. You know, she ends, you know, it sounds like she writes um, a play or some sort of like performance. I think she was a dancer. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously this world-renowned, whether it's ballet or what have you, world-renowned dancer actually takes the lead spot of of the, of the performance that she, she wrote you know, and then she had the option of being the understudy, which you would be quite bitter about if you wrote it. And you can understand why she's like, nah, by the time she got back to him, they said that, you know, she couldn't have it and they give it to somebody else. And then because she'd missed out on that, the, 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 you know, the world-renowned one, the lead one dropped out and then the sort of the understudy got it. So you feel for her because you think, geez, she's, you know, she's had that bad. But, you know, at, at the end when she finds the happy universe for herself you wonder if that m is actually the successful one she actually did get that role or she did mm. she did was the understudy and actually got the main part because so it's interesting because like as well you see with her husband i mean we see it later on in obviously it's not a husband at that point it's probably another universe husband that is um sort of getting a bit friendly with laurie so that's not even actually the one that we see at the beginning but she kind of like, you know, she seems to find a household at the end in the universe that everything seems good. And you can clearly see that Kevin loves the M in, that she sees through the window. So as far as she's aware, that probably is where everything actually came up trumps for her. And is the life that really she, the perfect life, the idealistic one. One of my uh, favourite parts of the movie is when she's in there, you know, beating herself to death or <laughs> knocking herself out in the bathroom. And it's the way that she has to, she has to use having a shit as an excuse <laughs> for where she's been. <laughs> and that, that really pleased me. <laughs> the, uh, but yeah, I mean, they, they integrate this sort of, this idea of alternate realities, you know, the what if, right? And in a way, I would have liked to see that more if we had sort of more pronounced differences so we could see However, like, I think the reason we didn't have that is because the director is maybe more interested in the gradual reveal, whereas, like, you know, she'd gone round to a house and there's, like, 
frame pictures of her as a successful ballerina on the wall, then that would have been a bit too overt. But at the same time, I would have maybe liked to have seen more of that, uh, you know, the what-if side of things, I guess. Where, like, what if this was different and things. Because, like, you know, people talk about the idea of um, unlimited, the sort of infinite universe theory of... Uh, every decision that you make, there exists uh, an alternate reality where you didn't make that decision, right? And I think it's such a novel concept for this kind of really small-scale film. It's really ambitious. I just, I would have, if there's one thing I'd fault it for, it's I'd have liked to have seen more of that. Oh, and the other issue that I had with it, it's a couple of minor issues, I find the soundtrack too leading at points. I liked the soundtrack when it was doing almost nothing. And I also did find, because of the annoying characters, I think the film was more concerned with, like, Triangle, more concerned with being clever than I think it necessarily was of telling a, a, a good character piece. But at the same time, it didn't matter, because once the characters were having to respond to the escalating circumstances, I thought it worked absolutely phenomenally. And the paranoia, oh, the paranoia, you know, as you're thinking... Oh, is that what's the tell? Is that person who I think they are? You know, is something rad going to happen? Like someone, like one of the other selves is going to come bursting in. Oh yeah, and and like you said with with the tin box that they end up getting, and it's like, well, where did all these photographs come from? And because because later on, M could choose a completely different photograph, but she did end up settling on the one that she did actually seen already. But she, it's like she didn't recognise it. So even there's little things that are like. Maybe I do need to even watch it another time. Do you know what I mean? For just try and sort of get like, have I missed something there? So that was one of them. Do you know at the end of the movie, and you know she clobbers herself to death. Not quite death, yeah, because she she still has to be alive to for some reason leave the house and then call the police. Yeah, because but there was um, a ring being dropped. Mm. Now, when I saw that, it didn't. It leading up to that did. She already had a ring on, and oh, did she not have the ring on at the time? And then she so she was putting another one on. But did I completely sort of cock that up? No, I think I she put both on. Oh, she put both on. Yeah, but one fell off onto the floor, so she picked that up and. Yeah, it was the version of her which she smacked with a cistern lid. Yeah, um, her ring fell off as she uh, pushed her into the bath, wasn't it? And she picked that up and put that on as well. She had to one from the car, I believe, didn't she? Yeah, yeah. From earlier. But I think, I mean, I'm going to have to watch this again, but I thought when she, so when she picked up it and put that on, I didn't think she had one on already, because I, but we'd just seen her put it on in the car. Nah, she definitely does. She definitely that's, did. Oh, yeah. that's um, your, your way of seeing that, like, yeah, she can carry stuff between, and this is, maybe, maybe this will be one, aside from obviously her being identical to someone else in the world, this uh, second ring is going to be something that makes her... Uh, Gets her caught, I guess. <laughs> like I said, I think it deserves an, an, a third rewatch or how many other times I've seen it. <laughs> i tell you one thing that jumped out at me um, towards the end. This is maybe why I need to rewatch it, right? There's a bit where, uh, you know when Hugh finds, <laughs> finds out that Mike uh, had sex with his partner, right? And then he, uh, he thumps someone. So a weird bit where he goes, you're my best friend. And I was like, Hugh and Mike are best friends? Since when? Like, I just didn't buy the chemistry between part yeah. between members but of the group. There, there is a nice little line that he says, though, something like, after they've discovered what's going on, you know, there's a million, you know, infinite amount of these universes, and I slept with your wife in every <laughs> single one of them. <laughs> oh, did he? Hmm? <laughs> 
I so I really enjoyed this one second time. Like I said, first time I watched it, I was just like, eh. Second time I watched it, I was taking lots of notes, you know, watching it slowly. And uh, yeah, it was really, really good. So mm. much better than I remembered. How did it go down with the uh, with the Grimfest audience, by the way? Did everyone, did everyone love it? Yeah, from what I can remember, everyone enjoyed it. Um, yeah. It was it was definitely good feedback from it from what I can remember, but yeah, it was one of the best of the festival for me anyway. Is that, um, uh, it aired at Fright Fest one year as well. I, I didn't end up seeing it there, but because um, I, I saw it on DVD a few months later, um, but it got absolutely outstanding uh, reviews from everyone there. And it was one of the sort of sleeper films. You know, it was playing in one of the Discovery screens, but it got some of the best reviews of the weekend. Like uh, Fright Fest uh, last year, or no, the year before. Uh, that would have been one cut of the dead was the one that everyone absolutely loved, you know, and like, and that was also one of the discovery screen movies. And then mm. it's like the one that everyone's talking about. So like, you know, you look out a few months later and go, wow. And uh, yeah, I'm really happy to to have rewatched this, and I'm really happy to now be a fan of coherence. <laughs> Whereas at first I thought the the film was, oh, incoherent and uh, yeah and you know sticky day job (laughs) now I just sort of look at it and think wow you know it was it was incredibly well calculated calculated like again there must be diagrams and diagrams behind that absolutely I I really like the way it's structured so at first we think ah is this just some weird little time skip like they've somehow in this little bubble where they can't progress beyond their house. And when they, you know, and the house down the street is them, but is it in the future? Is it in the past? Cause you've got these little things like when they find the box, it's implied that this is something they do a little further on in the film and the note on the door and so on. And then we see um, the red glow sticks. Now, the, the house we're following all have the blue ones, don't they? So I think I think it kind of gets you to believe that. Ah, so the guys with the blue glow sticks, they're the good guys, and the ones with the mm-hmm. red ones are the bad guys. You know, it's Star Wars. Um, but then we see another color glow stick. And it's, ah. And then we start to see that it's branching off with all these little changes in the detail. Like mm. the, the photo that they have to take of the guy because they don't have one at hand using a slightly different pose. And that's when the penny starts dropping. You're like, ah, so there are more and more of these. And then it snowballs to the point where we're at the bit where it's just M trying to find her idyllic situation at the end of all this. And just the way it's just slowly plotted along and gets bigger and bigger for something really that's quite small is just incredible. Yeah, and it does the same sort of thing that Triangle does actually, but actually where you like you know you have one character that we discover all this through, I suppose. If that being said, something it does that Triangle doesn't do is as the members of the audience, we get some information that Emily doesn't get. You know, we see conversations that she doesn't have access to. So when uh, Mike goes off to do the letter, we know about that, but she doesn't know that's happening. So I suppose uh, those bits aside, this kind of our universe 
Emily, I think, is a uh, like it builds up quite a good relationship between us as viewers and her as a character. The bit where she uh, attacks herself, I don't know that that was quite built up enough. Just because, uh, like to an extent, because there's such a plot to unravel, she's a bit of a blank slate protagonist to an extent. Hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, we get that she's desperate, we get that she's looking for her idyllic situation here, and we get that this is a one house that hasn't been affected because the power cut hasn't yet happened, so they all just stayed inside. But it was an escalation to getting her in the situation where she was going to clobber herself and uh, leave from the bath. I mean, I guess it's that kind of hell is other people thing, you know, no matter what universe she'd been in, it was a toxic atmosphere for friends. I just don't know that it was go to that length toxic, you know? Yeah, I see what you mean, and it does come across quite abruptly at the end. But it, it just you just get this impression of oh, fuck it, I'll just go with this one and try and get rid of uh, <laughs> so I can take a place. You know, it does seem like she's just got to the end of her tether and yeah, this looks good enough. Although I, I do recommend it, I suppose. I mean, a lot. A lot of sci-fi films of alternate universes and stuff, as you mentioned earlier, that there'd be pictures of them being successful at what they want to be successful. At. And there's a lot where, oh, we're in the fascist alternative universe now, so we've got to hide <laughs> from all these people. But it did make a refreshing change that all of the differences were very minute and not obvious at first until, you know, we were a good three quarters of the way through. And it did make a really refreshing change from that point of view. Yeah, no, I think I, I think that's absolutely fair. I mean, uh, you know, it's a very different take on this kind of film. And uh, actually, one other thing I wanted to commend it on is the bit with the Comet story. I absolutely loved that part. You know, where she's uh, building up the lore, the story in Finland, you know, this uh, old lady who, uh, who, who, who offed her husband uh, you know, says, I know that wasn't him because I killed him last night. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, uh, I like the kind of the gradual weirdness that it's, built, that it's bringing in, you know, the sort of thing of people's phones going on the blink and stuff like that. You know, it was, uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe the sort of like, you know, those sort of urban legends that everyone grows up on and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I thought, it was, I, thought that, I thought that aspect was really, really well done. And I like how that was, you know, one of the first things, you know, her, her phone smashing. And then, um, you know, Hugh, Hugh's one as well, going the same way at the dinner table. Mm. And that that is kind of what really is a revelation later on when she says, no, your phone was broken. A few of them are like, yeah, it did. And he's like, no, it didn't. And I think yeah. it's good how that was one of the first things that actually then they start to prove a point with it later on of this is not two households this is an infinite for every choice that we've had for every ping pong paddle stapler coaster they've you know whatever they've decided to throw in that tin i mean if you think about it, it could be bloody how many things in the house could they've put in the tin that could be <laughs> as many that but how frightening must that be imagine if you're in m's shoes or even anybody in that household and because at one point she even comes across that um the household and a few of them are of like they've been like tape over the mouths and like tied to yeah, the hands yeah. tied behind a chair I mean Christ what's going on I, there I want is you that... know what the fuck had happened in that <laughs> yeah, that's the, the thing was... isn't it 
Uh, yeah, and there was one where, is it Mike? Sorry, he was fighting yes. himself. <laughs> that, that was it, because he was always geared up, he was proper fired up and wanted to go and confront them, didn't he? And then you just see that little snippet of him through the window where he's pummeling himself in the face. <laughs> I, I really liked his paranoia about what the other version of him would be doing, you know? Mm. This bit about, oh, is that like the evil version of us? And the way it then opens up to, no, it's just another in the potentially millions, yeah. you know? I absolutely loved that. Do you wonder at what point does that, you know, when I was saying before about M could have had a different, her life could have turned out differently in them other universes, like at what point does the reaction, the, the sort of lives change? Is it only from the start of the comic going across, going, you know, flying through the sky or. Could all the different people in the other universes, realities, all have completely different pasts? Or is it only from that point of the comic that they, that they choose different outcomes? Like, could he have just picked up, Mike, uh, Mike could have just picked up, you know, um, the booze and started drinking it? Or because it seemed to be like he could have actually been a drunk? It's an interesting question. It's not... I don't think they explicitly answer. I mean, I worked off the assumption they had to have slightly different paths just because it seems like she's going to be a bit fucked uh, at the end of the movie with whatever the next question is. You know, because it seemed to me like they're, bigging, they're building up to she could not defend herself in that universe. That would have whatever the slight difference he saw her, there are things that she, the um, the other Emily would be able would be able to identify, and she wouldn't be able to. So mm. for me, I I didn't take it as the division happened where the thing went over, but I mean it could have because I don't think there's any radically different uh, lives in it. Like you see in that morning after scene when she wakes up and everyone's all happy and everyone's getting on fine. Like there is a different aura to the house from when the film starts, isn't it? Yeah, and I suppose maybe that is just like the um, the nicer, sort of less snipey kind of universe. You know, maybe they weren't all taking horse tranquilizers. <laughs> oh, maybe they were. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe they were. That's maybe, why they were relaxed. <laughs> they were all on it. Um, yeah, uh, so, in coherence, uh, I would personally also give that film four stars. But I will say it's a better four stars than Triangle. What about yourself, Steph? Four and a half. I, you know, it takes a lot to get to five, but I think it's a very, very decent four and a half. It's almost there for me. Absolutely loved it. Like I said, I, one day I might actually watch the entire movie and actually make notes of when one goes out of the house just for try and see. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure the writers knew what they, knew what they're doing and made it absolutely bob on. But I'm just curious. I just want to know for my own my own benefit of which one we're looking at at that time. I think that would be just really interesting and very nerdy of me to do, but I think it'd be a bit of a laugh. I took because... lots of notes and would recommend it. Did you? <laughs> right, that's the sign of my notes there. Well, one thing I did notice, which I hadn't noticed, I don't think, on the previous watches, is that, do you know the beginning of the film and she's you know babbling on about ketamine and mixture thing? And... Um, She's like, oh, where did you buy this? It was like a plant or something, or like an artificial plant. And then she goes, oh, I got it from such and such a place. And it's when it's Lee and Beth when they're saying that. And you see Em's face sort of drop and she ste- takes a step back like, oh, shit, because I've already been, she was already present at that conversation first time around at the beginning of the movie. And you're like, oh, this is, this is not the household that 
you know, not the original one whatsoever, and that it's it's just all fascinating. It must have must have been a bugger, right? I really take my hats <laughs> off to to the writers and the filmmakers for doing this because it is such a tight film, and they've they seem to have got it pretty much wrapped up. So, and it for me compared to Triangle, it's a lot more of a challenge. This film mm-hmm. for try and keep that keep that sort of storyline sort you know proper on. Yeah, it's far it's a far smarter, far more complex movie i'd say and uh and yeah when you get those moments like that the moments of realization they are really rewarding like the one where it's her and i think kevin outside where they where he's like what book and it's a bit where he just suddenly reveals that this is not the kevin that she knew from her universe yeah. but the other thing is she's in the wrong universe herself as well yeah and yeah really really good and uh, jim what about yourself how many stars would you give this one uh, yeah, I'd, I'd go with a four as well. I, although the beginning is necessary, it's just a difficult hurdle to get over. So that aside, it's a spot-on film. Absolutely fantastic, but yeah, four stars. Cool. Well, will this be the best film of night? Let's find out in a few moments. Folks, we are going to 2014 for Predestination. You like your job? Hell no. Nobody's ever given you a break, right? Did you listen to my story? Yeah, and you excelled during your service training. Excelled. You have skills you've never had the chance to use, and I can give you that chance. Let me put it this way. I hand them to you. You do whatever you like. And when you're done, you try my job. You don't like it, you walk away. You're not talking about bartending, are you? I'm not talking about bartending. Folks, this is my favorite film of the evening and very possibly one of my 20 favourite films of all time. I absolutely love this one. The thing that really blows me away about this is that for most part of it, for most part of it, this is just a film about two people hanging around in a bar talking. You know, the dialogue is so natural, the performances are so good, and it's so satisfying to see everything come together at the end. Uh, really, really uh, good plotting. They took a very awkward short story and managed to work it into just this, you know, this wonderfully twisty, this paradox-heavy uh, little movie that's very small scale, but at the same time, it's so rich, you know, there's just so much going on here. This is exactly the sort of movie that I'm a fan of. Small scale, couple of characters, all about the characters, Although the plot is still brilliant. Can't say enough good things about this. Absolute five stars. Loved it. Did either of you love this film this much? Absolutely. I thought it was incredible. It's definitely a film with two halves. As you say, uh, you've got the... uh, Well, for the most part, at the beginning, you're sat in a bar, just two people telling a story. And... It's just the way that story is told. You can't take your eyes off the screen. And that's before you even get to any of the twists and revelations. Uh, Sarah Snook is so good in this film. Mm -hmm. Um, And even seeing the uh, younger versions of, uh, at the times, Jane, um, just going through that whole orphanage section, seeing them grow up, the things they get up to. I like the bit where she nearly gets hit by the car and gives it a little punch. Uh, <laughs> right in the well. that, that was a real, just everything about that little bit. It was just so cool. 
Um, and then going on to Space Corps, that uh, big industrial brutalist 60s building, that just looked great. Um, all these little sci-fi tropes in it, and they only just progressed from there. Um, and just the back and forth between her and Ethan Hawke, um, it, that's probably the best I've ever seen him in anything as well. It just all comes so natural. And you you are convinced these are the same person by the end of it as well. It's it's so brilliant how they do it. And then, then you've got the second half of the film, which is more of the sci-fi aspect where you've got all the time uh, jumping and finding out more about who he is, who they are as people. And you get onto the bomber as well. Like he's, uh, I guess he's the protagonist and the antagonist of the film, isn't he? So, um, it's just amazing how many different passage threads from such a small scale. And that's the thing. It combines this kind of very complex plot with a really good emotional character journey as well. You know, like, like I was saying about um, about Triangle, that Triangle grounds it in something something real. So does this. You know, this is a person looking for acceptance and uh, looking for a sense of purpose. We follow this character for the whole thing. Uh, folks, because this is about to get quite convoluted as we go through the plot here, from this point onwards, we'll use Jane for anything prior to the character having gender reassignment surgery. We'll use... John for anything prior to the character getting their face burnt, and then afterwards <laughs> we'll call them the agent. Although, of course, as anyone who's seen the film knows, they're the exact same person. Steph, what did you make of this movie? Oh, I remember watching it for the first time. It just absolutely blew me away. Um, as you both said, you know, Sarah Snook and um, Ethan Hawke, just tremendous. Because it starts off a very intimate film, doesn't it? I mean, it's just them two. And Sarah, as John, you know, he's, he's relaying his story, his past, growing up as, you know, as a little girl. Um, and, and we just see right from the beginning, right from, you know, a baby, just the struggles and, you know, growing up in an orphanage and knowing that, you know, that, that she, was, she was different um, through her childhood. And then just all this shit that just gets flung at, you know, this is this is somebody who's gone through a hell of a lot, um, you know, and has reached a point now in his life um, where he's kind of sort of taking all that upset and, you know, and, and writing the confession um, columns that, that he used to read when he was younger as a woman working in um you know working as a cleaner for for a family and that and you just totally it just sucks you in that whole story and that you know the journey of while she was jane and then you know where life turned round and just the loss and everything you properly get involved and you think jesus you know this individual has gone through so much and you can understand why you know john's at the bar and just bitter as hell and then you know i never guessed what would happen, you know, that that the agent was John and Jane and that everything sort of linked together. It, it was just fascinating. It absolutely blew me away. Now, I've only, uh, prior to, you know, 
prior to watching it for this uh, podcast, I'd only seen it the once when it was when I reviewed it at the time when it came out. Upon second watch, probably because I knew what was happening, it didn't quite have the same. It didn't blow me away in quite the same way. That's not saying I didn't like it. I absolutely like, still enjoyed it, but I didn't. I think with coherence, it's one of them where you can maybe watch a lot and maybe still find little new things. It wasn't so much the case in, with Predestination for me, watching on second go, I'd probably that shine one up, wore off a bit. But the, 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 cast, the casting's outstanding. The writing is fantastic. It's just everything about it I really enjoyed. So, yeah, I still rate it very highly, even though... Um, I know G- uh, Jim mentioned the Mandela effect before. I kind of got a bit of that with. Did you guys watch it on Amazon Prime or have you got it on DVD? Uh, I watched Prime. it on Prime. Yeah. yeah, it's not been cut that has it on Prime. You know what? Um, I don't because, know because I have this memory of the, uh, the the ending being a bit longer than what it was. Um, yeah. His confrontation with the, the bomber version of him I could have sworn there was a bit more to it than what we saw at the end of that but again I might be thinking of another film because you know I I, I really like these kind of films and I've probably seen quite a few but yeah for some reason I, I thought there was a bit more to it than what we actually see and I, not to say that wasn't great as well I mean that was a really really good ending uh, the, the, the moral uh, dilemma he leaves himself in it's fantastic because you've got this story that you've been following all the way through and you've got this subplot of, of the fizzle bomber. And then all of a sudden, you know, that as the film's ending, it's got, a, you know, an absolute ton of possibilities where this character's going. And, but yeah, as I say, like, I could have sworn there was a bit more to it than what we actually saw there. Does it, I don't think it really has least much of a possibility. I mean, the thing is, I took it as... Throughout the course of the film, we've been watching this guy, uh, Roberts. Robertson, is it? Roberts? Robertson, oh, the Noah Taylor character. Yeah, the dude of uh, Tash. We've basically been watching him pulling the strings for this. Because oh, yeah. we've got a wonderful conspiracy thing coming in here of, okay, the, the purpose that essentially this character is going to have is doing, is got to be leading to the creation of ta- or their creation of time travel by doing a terror attack that warrants time travel to be created to prevent other attacks, right? And it's the way that we watch Ethan Hawke, uh, the agent in it, we watch that version of a character having to abduct himself as a child and uh, begin this whole cycle and then eventually... Thinks, he thinks he's closing the loop by shooting himself as a fizzle bomber, like that'll cancel out. But you're like, no. All this does is it means that the truth will never be uncovered. And it can't be uncovered because the fizzle bomber dies before the bomb can go off. But at the same time, in killing the fizzle bomber, and then going back in the case, no, the violin case, time, time machine thing is not, you know, it's still working. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Then um, they've now primed <laughs> himself to go off. And and go and like lose her mind to the point that they're committing the crime they just thought they stopped themselves from committing, like yeah. that. I, I didn't take that as a, any possibilities at all. I, I thought the purpose that they were realizing we had here was was leading to the circumstances that allowed time travel 
to exist. And the thing is, it couldn't go any other way because they had to do that for the bomb to have gone off to then have the uh, circumstances that allow their that allow their own existence. Yeah, well, I may have forgotten that little point, but <laughs> no, like, everything is premeditated, isn't it? There's no coincidences. There's no happy accidents. Mm. Everything happens because it has to happen. But I, I think from the agent's point of view is in killing the older version of himself as the Frizzle Bomber, he probably sees that as this being the first time in his life where he has the possibility of going in his own direction. It's not predetermined. It's not this course he has to follow. But obviously, from the conversation he has with himself, you, you can see the cogs whirring, and he knows that the older version of him, although somewhat morally dubious, is probably right. So, you you know, it will set the wheels in motion for that to happen eventually. But from his point of view, it, he does end the film almost liberated, I suppose. Well, he goes back, right? And then we've got the bit where the machine's no longer, it, it's not decommissioned, right? For like, and hmm. then looks at this and is thinking, I'm going to use this again. <laughs> you know, um, I'm going to do what the bomber said. But in doing so, becomes a bomber because they say that you know you you get you get a little bit more insane every time every time you use this thing you become mm, more disconnected yeah. from uh, from reality the thing is the boss this is guy Fatash Roberts Roberts knows this he's given him a faulty time time machine in order to make this happen you know he's been the one yes that's the main thing you get on rewatch he's the one pulling the strings the entire time mm. it's like the devil throughout this you know he's put this character into this into this a hellish cycle of creating of creating their own birth, dri- uh, driving himself insane by pursuing himself, killing himself, thus disposing of the evidence. Because again, this is before the bomb, and then setting off the bomb themselves alongside all sorts of other bombs. This guy with the task, Roberts, gets everything he wants out of it. But the bittersweet part, I suppose, is our character, the agent John Jane, whatever we're calling them. They do get their sense of purpose. They do get their sense of being special because they're the anomaly, the snake eating its own tail. You know, they're yeah. the, they are the anomaly that allows any of this and allows time travel at all to happen. You know, and I thought, I thought that sounded quite beautiful about that. But is is John, Jane, and the agent, are they the only time travel? I think there's more time travellers, but at the end of the day, it, it's, it's awful in a way because... I suppose it just the life of Jane and obviously they went going to John afterwards is just going over and over and over again, isn't it? It's just going to be time repeating itself in 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 a, in a fashion, isn't it? Yeah, because for our other time travellers, you mentioned was like well, eleven of them, I think we say, but at the same time, there's nobody else that we know of that only exists because of time travel, because this plot revolves around quite a an ingenious little concept of a person being their own mum, their own dad, <laughs> their own uh, their own enemy, and eventually their own killer, right? And uh, you know that, that sort of paradox thing. I just I just find so good. You know, like I think if you go, okay, John Connor, how does John Connor send uh, Kyle Reese back to father himself? And then this one's like, you know, hold my beer. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Absolutely. 
you really feel for the characters in this as well. Or the, the character, I guess, like, you know, with Jane in it. When Jane meets the mystery man, and then you just see her smile, it's so cute. Mm. And uh, yeah. then there's such, like, when we see this from the other side with John, you know, the conflict that John has at leaving Jane in this. And the thing is, just like uh, like the agent and with John, as an audience, we love Jane too. I mean, that ending part where you've got the monologue, you know, of uh, you're the best thing that's ever happened to me, something that mirrors something that's said earlier on in the movie. But, you know, you, you get that and then it's, you know, I, uh, I miss you dreadfully. And it's, it's just something really nice about the idea of the, that both future incarnations of the character saw something in Jane that Jane didn't see in herself, you know. And, uh, yeah, it makes the whole thing so... Yeah, very, very tragic, very bittersweet. I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. That that yeah. ending bit is a, that's a hairs on the on a hairs standing on end moment every fucking time I watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so good, and there's loads of little like bits of foreshadowing and a few little beats started about. I mean, at, at the beginning, the bit where he's been involved in the explosion is had to have a face transplant. It's looking himself in the mirror and. You know, once again, doesn't recognise the person that they're looking at anymore. So this is what now the third incarnation, mm. as such. But oh yes, yes, no, I never even made that parallel. Yeah, just like when John first looks in the mirror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a it before we're basically told that. Jane, John, Agent are all the same person. We go back to that explosion that we see at the beginning, and you can actually see that is John lying there. So, although you do have the reveal a bit further down the road from that point, that is where the penny drops. That ah, okay, this is the same person again, and it's just so well done. We have another nice parallel, the bit where John realises that he's the mystery man within this, right? And at the same time, during this, we're caught in between another scene of the agent realising that he's a fizzle bomber. And I thought this sort of uh, bit about two people, uh, we turn out later it's the same person, kind of having having an identity crisis, I guess. And also sort of seeing, like, you know, maybe if I... uh, I, maybe I can learn something from a different version of myself at a different time in my life. You know, the sort of thing of if you could go back and meet yourself younger, you know, yeah. be able to give yourself good advice. <laughs> you <know? laughs> or do you have to, you know, do you have to go through the bad moments to then make you wiser to be able to inform your younger self? And it's, uh, it does it wonderfully. Yeah. Unfortunately though, there's no option really is there. It is, they are doomed to repeat over and over and over just like a uh, triangle, I suppose. Some of the other foreshadowing we get is there's a nice line of son of a bitch. And he's like, yeah, that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, the I am my own grandpa song uh, (laughs) playing throughout that as well, you know. But do you think at any point that, you know, because obviously this is all going to serve to repeat, but that maybe in some in some existence that John might, you know, when the agent takes John back to that moment where they meet in the 60s, that he goes and sees Jane, realises 
ah, I, you know, I am the mystery man that she fell for. But maybe just choke, you know, maybe just choose to ignore her. Do you think? Do you think that would ever be a? I mean, could anything be changed? I know it says predestination and that everything, you know, everything's sort of like predetermined for Jane. But could there be an element of actually, well, I choose a different outcome? Yeah, that would be interesting to explore. But I've got to say, if we're just using that specific scene for an example, as soon as she smiles, I'd have fallen for her as well, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> she, does, she does have a lovely smile. I mean, because I remember, you know, even watching it again, you know, it, the, the sort of the two personalities of, of John and Jane, they've done really great with the makeup department and things for, for actually make them look like, you know, individual personality, you know, individual characters. Because when um, when Sarah smiles as Jane, it's completely different to sort of, you know, the appearance of John. You know, they do actually look like they could be two separate people rather than, you know, the same person and just going obviously through a lot of changes. You know, it's just it's just such a great film. And obviously with Ethan Hartley, that's different then because it's a different actor playing. But I liked as well where... Um, John said, you know, I tried to speak lower to get the male voice. Um, and obviously when the, the burning thing happened and burned the throat, didn't need to anymore. It came out yeah, naturally, yeah, didn't have to yeah. try. So um, it's just such a such a great film. Like, like with Coherence, you know, these two proper good examples of the genre that we're discussing today. I mean, I don't think so. I think maybe... Where we do get a little bit of solace from the whole thing, because it is quite a grim story at the end of the day, I think we do get some solaces. An element of uh, the character Jane, she doesn't realise this herself, but she's very loved by the end of it. I think that's something quite nice about it. And this person who's always been an outsider has some form of uh, purpose, right? The purpose here, up until the point of the fizzle bomber, explains that uh, time travel can save lives in it. We don't really see why w- what the purpose of this is. And the thing is, while we can say, well, this guy with the tash is pulling the strings the entire time, at least it also leads to a context where we know that lives can still be saved through the creation of time travel. So I guess the purpose in this is going to be in something that, admittedly, is going to, is going to result in lots of people dying, and that's bleak as fuck. But at the same time, it could still potentially be something that saves a lot of lives as well. And uh, I think that's maybe, if there is a positive thing to be taken out of it, that's the other positive part, you know? Yeah, I mean, that is the morally dubious conclusion, isn't it? There is some light at the end of the tunnel, but he reels off a few examples of, you know, this person will go on to do this horrible thing if I don't stop them here, then yeah, there may be a little bit of collateral damage, but it's 10 times worse if I left it. So, you know, that is food for thought, I suppose. I don't think there's any way that there's an eventuality where it can deviate from this course that is set for. I mean, I think something else the film gets, why the ending's still quite emotionally satisfying, is I guess it's a bit like, you know, the um, the magician's trick thing, where you're like, okay... We've already had lots of really nice twists in this. When you get the last one where Ethan Hawke says, like, you know, I love her too, right? And then we've got, oh, shit, this is a prestige part, you know? 
almost in awe of how well done that was. And oh, yeah. there's no detectable plot holes or anything too obvious here, except for the how the fuck does this person exist thing. Yeah, the only thing that's really going to make your head cave in is trying to determine where they came from in the first place. Mm. But yeah, it, it, yeah. Com- compared to the other films, it just seems to... It's, it's another level compared to the other ones we've discussed. The just... It's overall presentation, it's writing, the acting, everything about it is spot on. Absolutely, and such an interesting situation for it as well. Such an interesting temporal paradox at its core. You know, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, fantastic. Is there anything bad about this film? No. Oh, violin case. <laughs> you weren't a fan of the violin case. I kind of am, but at the same time, I think I feel like it's a bit a bit lame. We could have chose something else, maybe saxophone case. <laughs> <laughs> that might have been a little bit cooler. <laughs> One of my favourite sci-fi films, the way they explain the technology, is uh, Inception because they don't explain it. You know, we're just like, all right, this dream machine exists, and uh, you're stuck with that existing, right? We're, we're not going to explain how it works because the characters know how it works, and if we do exactly the same here, you know. They don't try and explain the time travel device at any point. We're just like, look, it's a fucking violin case, and it and it can take you through time. Well, you're stuck if, with it. If your story is good enough, if it's strong enough to carry the whole film, then it's you know you, you go with it, don't you? You, you accept <laughs> that what it is. And well, by absolutely. the time you get to the point where, well, they're traveling through time with violin cases, it's like mm, fair enough. <laughs> absolutely. The thing thing is because like. Um, like Triangle, although better than Triangle here, like Triangle, what it did was, like, it really did ground it in something small and character-based so that when the fantastical element comes in, you're on board, you know? You've got personal stakes of uh, Jane might find out what happened with John, which does happen, but from the the other side, with John Mm. realising that they were indeed the mystery man, you know? And uh, that revelation along with uh, Ethan Hawke, the agent's um, need for closure as well, which also comes down to identity issue. It was, yeah, it was like the character journey was so strong that I mean, it would not have been in any way enhanced by a, a rundown of here's how time travel works. So that's yeah. everything. You're fighting an uphill battle by explaining time travel. Because if you do, all that's going to happen is you get something wrong because you're bringing in something that doesn't exist to begin with. You know, better uh, just to better just to leave it vague yeah, as possible. Uh, plus, we get that little bit at the beginning where we know he's obviously working for an agency that deals with all these temporal uh, terrorism and so on. So, you know, yeah, I I can buy that. Let's get on with it. <laughs> oh, and, and actually, one thing about this is when I first, from the first five minutes, and also from the poster, I thought we were going to end up with one of those. Uh, movies like uh, Looper, which are not, no offence, Looper, but I thought we'd end up with an action-oriented movie like that or Equilibrium, rather than something that was so intimate, you know? Yeah, I, well, luckily, f- I, I went in blind pretty much, because uh, uh, Ross, um, he went on about this for ages. Um, so when I saw it on TV uh, once, I thought, All right, I'll, I'll finally give in to him and, yeah. Fair play. It was it was great, and, and going in blind was fantastic because I did not know what to expect. Oh, by the way, the other bit of foreshadowing I'd forgotten was a face-shaped face like yours or mine. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and John Stephen Hawk. Um, yeah, if you own... came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose in this case, how to be John, but um, the, uh, the only bad thing I thought about this movie, and I'm about to bring this in as a criticism, but then I'm also about to simultaneously defend it as well, right, is um, in terms of the way it handled gender issues, I the things that marked Jane out as different were very stereotypical. It's like, all right, yeah, she can fight and she doesn't like gossip, so she's not like the other girls, right? And I thought, well, I suppose, I suppose being the year of this film set in, I guess it's not really a comment on saying, well, this is how boys act, this is how girls act. I guess in a way it's it's more saying, uh, well, these, these are the values that society places upon, like, you know, here's what, how boys are expected to act, here's how girls are expected to act, so that's why she doesn't fit in. But so the when they bring in gender reassignment surgery into it, I liked the... They dealt with uh, body dysmorphia here quite well because it did show some of the things people might worry about, like, for instance, uh, things like voice pitch or physical form, genitals they don't necessarily identify with. But what's interesting is that uh, the experiences that John was having would be more something that would prime a primer person to have an operation in the first place as opposed to what happens after you have an operation. So I saw some, uh, some members of the trans community were saying they had issues with the film kind of perpetuating uh, gender binary norms. But where I would sort of argue against it is I don't think this isn't this film isn't about being transgender. The character is intersex for a start. Um, and gender reassignment surgery is something they have forced upon them. Being transgender and uh, being intersex obviously aren't the same. And I think the criticism of that is potentially conflating them as if they are the same. Now, what is quite interesting, though, is, um, you know, you could say, well, I can't think of a single other mainstream film that's had an intersex character in a prominent role. Yeah, no, I can't either. <laughs> it's, it's definitely got that going for it. Um, and no, well, it's, it's quite bold, I suppose, from that point of view as well. Um, but there's no other film like it, is there? No, and like while uh, you know, I do think there are some issues with uh, with gender with the way that gender norms are sort of established in this of oh well, you know she's aggressive, therefore she, therefore, therefore uh, this is our way of giving a cue that she's also intersex. And whilst don't get me wrong, I like to think that decades from now maybe people will look back at this and was being slightly antiqua- antiquated in some ways. Yeah. At the same time, like you know, it's uh, as a product of it, of the time that it came out. I think it's absolutely. I think it's remarkable. And uh, I mean, the directors of this. I saw they went on to do. Actually, firstly, one thing that did slightly frustrate me was some of the directors doing an interview about the movie where they were talking about the gender aspect of it, and they said, "Oh, but the film's apolitical." I was like, "Wait, wait, 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 wait." You can inherent to a film about uh, a gender non-binary characters is the film has to be political. You know, as much as all art is political, all art's a product of the era came out and all art reflects the norms of the period it came out and hence why we're now seeing people having issues of Pepe Le Pew um, <laughs> at the same time you know it's uh, like, I, I, like I, I don't I think they thought they were 
evading a representation issue by saying, well, but it's more about a character than the politics. Yeah, and you go, yeah. it's about both. You know, it has to be about both. Um, well, look at the, look at her struggles trying to get a job, for example, at this space corps. I mean, tell me that's not political uh, of its time, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think the thing is, like, in a way, that does also have quite... Um, I think, I think in a way it's quite progressive because, you know, you're talking about um, a film that shows how gender expectations get in the way of someone's employment, for instance, or make someone very conscious about performative aspects like how they dress and how they talk. Um, you know, I mean, don't be wrong, I'm not going to say people shouldn't have a problem with the movie or anything like that. It's not my call to make. And you mentioned about how, you know, I suppose a throwaway term would that be quite tomboyish with her getting into fights and so on. But I, I never made that connection. I just always saw it as her, you know, she's she's been raised in an orphanage. She's got a, quite a tough upbringing. And, you know, it is more of a, a stereotype for, you know, kids from those backgrounds to be more uh, disconnected from everyone else and, you know, disruptive even, you know, can get aggressive. So that's that's how I saw it from that point of view. I mean, obviously, as you've just mentioned, a lot of other people saw it um, from them eventually becoming male. But yeah, I I never saw it as that connection myself. But that's just my experience of the film. I mean, I think one of the other criticisms that came up was people were suggesting that the um, uh, the gender reassignment surgery part wasn't something that was done for the character. It was something that was done because the situation necessitates that uh, they can be fertile as both a male and a female. That's that's the primary reason that you need that you need to have both uh, Jane and John in the film. Hmm. But at the same time, um, where that could potentially be seen as troubling is the way that you go. Well, the character here is seen as like an anomaly, almost like a freak of nature, because it's a character that shouldn't exist essentially, right? And I think that that's something that people caught on to. I can't say that no one else, that no one should be bothered by that, but at the same time, I find the idea of the film so so interesting. And also, I just thought the other thing was that it was such a strong character piece. You know, um, I mean, something else actually really worked with this is the way that the central character in it is not a Mary Sue. You know, they're far from perfect. We've got a character here that, as John says, because John has an element of insight for having lived as Jane, of the thing is that you're, you know, you think you're better than everyone. And I like this sort of idea of a character who doesn't fit in, so therefore comes to comes to comes to internalize the, the idea that they want to be special. You know, they want to be part of the elite here. And uh, there's a bit of an ego-driven part of the character that I, that really appealed to me. I mean, what was interesting for me when watching it as well was obviously it's set in um, that particular point in the sixties um, uh, with, with the space core thing. You know, here we have. Jane, who's you know exceptionally bright, especially in the sciences, you know, but the only role that you know she could actually get involved going out of space is basically prostituting herself, or you know, basically mm. being a pleasure item for the spacemen, and it, it just it just sort of captures obviously how far we've come from, you know, you know how how life was back then, where obviously options were limited for women and, and that was the only way that you really could get out of you know into space was actually just becoming a partner for the men so they didn't get bored or sexually frustrated or anything so <laughs> uh, <laughs> um 
But yeah, just going back to that thing before, I think, yeah, it, it kind of gives me the impression of, oh, well, you know, she's a bit more of a tomboy. She gets into fights a bit more that they would, it, it, it did feel like maybe that they were trying to say, oh, that's because she's got some male tendencies in her. But that's, but it didn't, it, it wasn't quite shoved down throat in, in, in any way like that because, you know, mm. we, we all we all know that that's not the case with, you know, all females don't have to, you know, play with Barbies and, you know, it's, it's not that way. So, yeah, I haven't got really any, you know, as as a female with, with that, any any sort of issues with that. So I just I thought it was all good, you know. Everything about the movie is just so well written and the performances with Bob on, I can't really, I've not really got any complaints, to be honest. Yeah, there, I, I think I think this is the film of the night, personally. You guys agree with that one? Oh, absolutely. Um, I still love Coherence. I think it's tight <laughs> between them two. Uh, but I see the um, guns coming to your head and you have to pick which one you prefer. <laughs> co- coherence. <laughs> only because only because I can mention before I rewatched Predestination for this podcast and it didn't quite do it for me like it did on the first watch it, there was nothing everything I remembered everything pretty much do you know what I mean there was nothing new for me and with Coherence I think every time I watch it it surprises me a bit again like I'll have forgot things it's like Donnie Darko is one of those films where I've seen it countless amount of times but I still forget, like, kind of the scenes. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's like watching it for the first time every time I watch. You know, not completely, but there's a lot of scenes that I sort of. It's not one of them that's properly ingrained in memory. Every scene, you know, I fear and love in Las Vegas. I quote all the time to people, but you know, Donnie Darko, I've seen a lot of times, but you get you get your money's worth for that one. Then. Oh yeah, I can rewatch it over and over. So for that reason, you know, cause I've, I think I give them the same rating on the website. Um, you know, I do love predestination, but coherence for me purely because I think it makes me think at how many different, you know, realities, universes, whatever you want to call it, exist. I think it scares me actually. I think that's why I like it so much. <laughs> um, this topic of or topic of uh, space time tomfoolery. I believe you were watching the um, the simulation theory documentary recently, right, Steph? Oh, a glitch in the Matrix. That's the one. Rodney Asher. Did it? Did, were you a fan? Oh. Did, did it convince you that we that we live in a in a computer program? Don't ask me about that <laughs> documentary. <laughs> Do you know what? I hope you know when I watched the Matrix back in there. Proper, you know, the the whole entire concept of you know that you're potentially living in some artificial reality. Um, you know. I love anything like that. I think you can have a proper good conversation about exploring all sorts of concepts. And I thought that, you know, this documentary would have touched upon them. And I should have known better because I don't like, I've never liked any of the Ashes documentaries and I should have learned, but I got excited. And have you seen it at all? Uh, no, it's the same person who did uh, room two, the Room 237 one, right? Yes, and yeah. the, the Nightmare I believe as well. Oh shit! Nightmare. I did not know that was the same person. Yeah, mm. I like a nightmare. So it was just a lot of people with being interviewed. You don't even see who they are because they've got like some computer-generated avatar as the. It's like a real like. Let's say if it's like a real room, but it's kind of like a computer-generated avatar speaking, and then 
sort of overlaid are like a lot of uh, computer generated imagery video scenarios over the top whilst the cat whilst this person speaks but they never actually really touch on any of any decent theories or idea it's just a bit all over the show but i find that with his documentaries it's just there is scatterbrain and and then it went on for a bit about this there was a bit like about the, the, the matrix film but it was more about this guy who killed his parents because he was a bit obsessed with the Matrix, it was just a, it was just a letdown, and it it pro- well maybe I don't know if it promised so much, but I I just kind of got the wrong impression of what what to expect about the documentary. It didn't really touch on anything. It is very all over the show. I wouldn't really recommend it. I think they made a bit like that as well because I think part of the problem was that. Um we didn't really have any authoritative voices. Like, it paid lip service to a few ideas, but it didn't really expand on a lot of them. We got we had some engagements to, to put it within the scientific literature and stuff like that, but at the end, I don't think there was really much of an intellectual payoff. And um, Room 237, I guess, actually, now that you mentioned it, was quite similar as well. You know, mm. it's like, ooh... This person believes it's about the moon landing, but they didn't really explain why anyone thought that. You know, and it's, it's, it sort of felt like it was... Uh, it read almost like an introduction to the topic, but you, or like the introduction to a book that's full of different essays, and we don't see the essays, you know? Yeah, it's like the glitch of the Matrix. It, you know, it showed some um, archival footage of um, the, the author, Philip K. Dick, um, which was interesting. I found that bit all right. But it, yeah, it was just like a load of different little ideas that were touched upon, but it interviewed like these same three, four people all the time. And no sort of, there might have been one or two, maybe like scientists or thought leaders. When really a documentary like that, I would have liked to have seen more thought leaders um, talk about it because, you know, obviously Philip K. Dick's not with us, so it was just just showing him reading stuff it was just all over the shop like i said just a lot of random ideas but nothing ever gone into detail and not non really about oh are we living in some artificial reality are we just avatars you know because then you could go into like well who's then actually in control of this world is it is it robots is it aliens are we what are we are we breathing right now or Oh, I mean, I can have this conversation with everybody, you know what I mean, about proper going into it. And I think me filming my own explanations of stuff would actually be more coherent than that <laughs> documentary. And I tell you what, I'm so confusing when I talk and I don't even know what's coming out of my mouth. So, and even, and so that's something very bold for me to say, but yeah, I didn't like it. I'm wrong, but one of the main arguments for the simulation theory thing is if a world ever reaches a point where it could create the simulation that it must already be there. I think that's like the big point in it. If anyone's listening to this uh, YouTube or dark discussions, do feel free to uh, to give a, a better explanation than that. Um, folks, why don't we finish off by talking about uh, some other uh, time, space or space-time tomfoolery. Other films in this in a similar-ish vein. I might also chuck in the Rotten Tomatoes list for best time travel films as well. <laughs> Although I appreciate that not every movie tonight has had time travel in it. Um, yeah, arguably, arguably only one of them did, depending upon how we take Triangle. But uh, Jim, 
What is your uh, other space and time Tom Foolery movie? Yeah, I really love films that deal with this sort of thing. But uh, a few weeks ago, I watched a film I'd been, well, I wouldn't say putting off, but had been deterred from for years because everything I read about it basically suggested it was crap. And that was Time Cop. <laughs> <laughs> I had an absolute blast watching that. I mean, obviously, it's a Van Damme starring vehicle, which I also found out the other day. It's actually based on a comic book, uh, which I never oh. knew. No, um, I didn't. But it was just so much fun. I mean, you've got the, your staples of Van Damme films, like crap acting, decent amount of fight scenes and a fair amount of guns as well. Um, it was nothing like particularly groundbreaking, but it was just a generally entertaining film. He's, it starts off with him... Uh, losing his family basically uh, he joins this time bureau or whatever they call it um, basically trying to stop uh, the baddies who invented time travel themselves from manipulating the past uh, changing events that sort of thing and it is a fun little film and it's not quite as deep uh, I'd say it's probably about as deep as a puddle compared to what we've been discussing earlier um, but it is entertaining, and I just enjoy watching them go from time period to time period, the meeting themselves in the past, that sort of thing. It's, it's always entertaining to see, and you know, throwing a bit of uh, martial arts, and yeah, it gets my vote. I uh, should never seen it. It's about to say a good choice. I don't know if it's a good <laughs> choice. Uh, Steph, what about yourself? What did you choose? Right, I just need to pause you there because my dog's looking at me and needs toilet. Right, I'll be back in a minute. <laughs> because he's going shit all over ounce if I don't let him out. I'll be back in a moment. Uh, while Steph is away, um, I will start talking about my one. I shall ask her about when she gets back because we are leaving that in the cast. Um, my one I picked out was Donnie Darko. We talked about it briefly last time along with... Uh, Southland Tales, which I still not managed to watch. I, said, I told myself I would, but I saw the running time and felt intimidated. Um, yeah, Donnie Darko uh, does for me what Predestination does brilliantly, and that's that it has this time travel plot device in it, but at the same time, it grounds it in something very personal. You know, it's got a good emotional story going on throughout it, and I liked the way that. You know, Donnie finds about the sort of a dark underworld of his town and stuff like that throughout the the days that he has. You know, we see how his existence has has an effect on all the people around him. And it builds up to this moment of him, without giving the entire film away for the four people listening that haven't seen it, (laughs) it builds up to a big decision for him. And I thought it completely earned that ending. There's a lot of pathos to it and... uh, Whilst there's something now, but nowadays a little bit uh, cringe about the Gary Jules song playing in it. Mm. At the same time, it was it was brilliant. You know, it's uh, it's a really good, intriguing mystery. It's got a lot of emotional depth in it, and uh, the production values are exceptional. You know, based off that, I can absolutely see why Richard Kelly was going to be like originally the next big thing. Um, when I saw it last. 
I hadn't seen it since I was a teenager. And like you know, when you're a teenager, you watch it and you identify with uh, Donny, or at least I was a teenager yeah. when it came out. Yeah. I mean, well, you would have been as well. Yeah. And um, I guess when you're older, you know, you find Donny quite frustrating in some ways as a character. I think he's also a very realistic depiction of a teenager. Like, it's quite an affectionate sort of portrayal. Like, yeah, he's a dick, but all of us were probably dicks when we were teenagers. And, you know, the sort of melodrama of Yanks that he's got, I think, is very relatable. So, yeah, Donnie Darko, I, uh, that's my pick. Uh, Steph, yeah, are, you, are, you, are you back, by the way, Steph? I'm back. <laughs> uh, Jim, what do you think of Donnie Darko? It's, it's, a, it's a brilliant, brilliant film. Um, as you say, uh, I watched it a lot as a teenager. Um, I DVD was probably at its peak around the time it released. Um, it was in constant rotation in my player. Um, I absolutely loved the film. Um, and as you say, as you get older, you do look at it from a different perspective. And being a parent of teenagers myself now, um, I can assure you that, yes, they do act like assholes sometimes, and mm. their logic is completely different to an adult's logic. So... Um, you know that that you do see some frustrating decisions and character choices there, but then you realise that it's they're in a completely different world. Um, yeah. yeah uh, even away from the whole time uh, bending side of it, it's a brilliant story. Aside from him having to save the world. <laughs> yeah, and it's got a lot of a kind of an outsider cool element to it. You know, a. Uh, you know, a nice sort of tale of uh, of the apocalypse, but then you've also got like this giant rabbit there as well, and it you know also takes Donnie's obvious mental health issues very seriously as well. You know, um, yeah, and, and the casting was great as well. Oh, absolutely! You know? so I think it was the first thing I'd seen Patrick Swayze in for years. Yeah, um, he's a total, yeah, total cunt in it. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and Jake Gyllenhaal's so good in it as well. You can totally see how he became the breakout star from it, you know. Absolutely. You know, it's good that they, you know, they got his sister in as well to play his sister mm. in the actual film. It's such a good film that I remember first watching it. I didn't quite understand it, and I was younger at the time, so it probably went over my head. I think I, I was reading Kerrang at the time and they mm. had some review of it, of, you know, the picture where the still image was in the theatre. Mm. Yeah. I think I read uh, the same one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so obviously I watched it, you know, later, you know, a bit older and you understand these things better and you know, it's just such a classic, isn't it? Modern classic. Absolutely. Yeah, I think of that of, his, of the last twenty years or so, it's you know it's one of probably probably one of one of the standout films. And the thing is, like with the time travel element, some of the mechanics in it, I didn't entirely get the whole wormhole thing either. But at the same time, like the as long as it makes emotional sense to the character, that's the most important part of it. You know, and the same thing with predestination. If you have a story this good. If you have characters this good, it doesn't matter how time travel works because it's totally irrelevant to it, you know? So, yeah. Uh, I think that's good because you can sort of, when it's a bit, you're not quite sure what's happening. You know what I mean? Like with the time travel element, you're not quite sure if you've got all the answers or you've actually got what you think is right. I think that's even better because it makes you want to watch it again just to see if you can, you know put more pieces into the jigsaw for try and work out what is actually going on you know I, I quite like things like that. that's why like I say I like coherence because 
it just makes you think even more, you know. Mm. Folks, this is normally where we bring out some sort of a uh, some sort of a a list. I'm uh, not using not going to use Rotten Tomatoes this time. I'm going to use Screen Rant. So Screen Rant. They did they, this because I think their list is fun to both of me. I find it a more interesting one here. Um, this is their list from 2020. So it's more, uh, so they have the 10 best uh, time travel films. What do you reckon is going to be in this list? Some of these are ones with, we would absolutely not include for this, by the way. We would not. <laughs> yeah, there's some that oh. we just... We, not because they're not good films, but just because they're not, like, mind-bender films, but they do have time uh, travel uh, in them. I would obviously assume that Back to the Future is in there. Yes, Back to the Future, yeah. isn't it? That is number two. Personally, ah. by the way, mm. I prefer Back to the Future Part Two to Back One to Part One. Back to the Future Part One, but that's just because I love all the kind of time paradox stuff, you know, like the alternate timelines. It doesn't yeah. make a jot of sense because somehow the whole plot revolves around Biff going back in time, <laughs> but then returning to the reality he left, which just which just <laughs> doesn't work. Uh, but annoyingly, um, actually, there is a deleted scene of him fading out of existence. So oh, why they didn't leave that in there is beyond me. You know, I, it just makes total sense to keep it in there because it, it literally shows him getting out of the DeLorean, collapsing behind some bins, and he disappears. Ooh, one thing this reminds me, um, after we've gone through this list, I have a quick question about Endgame to ask you, which will, is also a time travel-related question. <laughs> but yes, Back to Future is in there. What else do you think in the top ten? Butterfly Effect, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, Butterfly Effect is not in the top ten. It's not? Ooh. Because that's quite a mainstream film, that, I'd have thought. Groundhog Day? Groundhog Day is not, but it's in Rotten Tomatoes yeah. one. Oh. Um, I might cheat and just type in time travel movies in Google <laughs> in a minute. <laughs> some, of them are, some of them are ones that we've talked about briefly on the show before. Um, well, I was going to mention, like, obviously my... Film I have to mention oh, about yes, time travel. Your film. Sorry, yeah. your do- I forgot your dog. How dare a- you? Yeah, I forgot <laughs> your, do- your dog took a piss. I was leaving myself to last. Yeah, what's your, what's your film, Steph? Time crimes. Uh, Nacho Vigalondo's. Um, it's a Spanish movie, and yeah, that's a time travel movie, and it, it sort of reveals, you know, shows its, you know, shows its cards quite early on in the film. So it's, it starts off with. Um. This, this guy and his wife, you know, have just moved into the house, and um, and and he, you know, he's he's pretty much a klutz, and um, he's letting his wife put all this furniture together, and he sees something weird going on in the woods, and you know, decides to investigate, and that's where we then start on this sort of journey, as it will be, and I won't ruin it because I've I've just realised that. I'm not sure if Jim's seen it, but I definitely know David's not seen it, so I won't actually go any further. But it shows its its hand quite early on, which is, ah. you know, yeah. it's not the what what I've just mentioned isn't quite you know spoilerific. It's it's just how it's kind of like put together. Hmm. Um, yeah, I have seen it watch. myself um, a good few years ago now, but what I can say is, do not read the Empire review if you have not seen it, because they literally tell you what happens. Like they oh, give away when things do that because like, I I thought what the reveal was was the plot but it isn't it's uh, it was frustrating once I started watching that and re- realised I'd already read what happens 
Yeah, because like I said, what I've just said isn't. I hope it's not really a spo- it's not really a spoiler because I. But there's there's you know there's just watch it <laughs> it's, I don't want to say anything more because I probably will put my foot in it but if you've not seen it it's, it's you know I think it's a early noughties film if memory serves correctly yeah yeah. Um, definitely go in blind I, I don't read anything about it yeah. just, just give it a go one thing I do know about it and I've not seen it so I can't yeah, I can't spoil it because I've not seen it but from the horror cult films conversation, uh, Ross has been saying that it, Triangle has more than a passing resemblance to it. However, with uh, Triangle, I did look into this. Apparently, there's interview records of Triangle being talked about before Time, Cri- Time Crimes came out. So that's obviously not suggested Time Crimes stole from Triangle. It's more just to suggest that uh, I, I, for a film of this type, you know, anything that's got your timey-wimey stuff or your time loop stuff I imagine it takes a day and an age to write this fucking thing and uh, <laughs> I can imagine um, that for a relatively unknown director outside the UK I imagine Christopher, Christopher Smith will have had uh, that film in production hell for some time but just like his character stuck in hell for some time <laughs> but, yeah. but I, what I can say is is that Time Crimes is the better of the two and I don't think there's a pile of salads either. Yeah. <laughs> there's no creepy ass abandoned ocean liner, but not it's it's a brilliant film. And again, it, it's a, it feels like a little tight knit. Well, I think I probably just because of of these sort of like time travel movies or loops or whatever you I think there is always that element of them being feeling very intimate and I think as you go on the journey with the characters, don't you really? But oh, just going back to um, Time Cop as well. Have you ever seen Jean Claude Van Johnson? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's uh, the uh, TV show on Amazon, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it was a great comedy. I thought. I, I wish they'd have actually renewed it. But yeah, um, it was. It was very. He, he he was very self-deprecating in that. He was not afraid to take the piss out of himself. It was very good. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, time time crimes. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's any others. Time Crimes makes number seven, by the way, on the Screen Rant list of the ten best Mm. uh, time travel films. Weirdly enough, as much as I love seeing these sort of films, I'm drawing a blank as to what other time travel films there are. Is is Triangle on there? No. Are there any ones we've mentioned tonight on there? One of them is Predestination is number nine. Mm. Yeah, obviously. Time travel. Didn't think to... (laughs) <laughs> ask about the ones we've already spoken I mean, about. The, the, the thing is, coherence couldn't be on it, but I couldn't think of a thing to look up that would that could potentially contain both of them. Unfortunately, space-time tomfoolery is not a <laughs> not a recognised subgenre. Um, yeah. Number ten is Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh yeah, get in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Bogus Journey is shite, but yeah, Excellent Adventure is. Is excellent. Uh, number nine <laughs> is Predestination. I, by the way, I, I, with Bill and Ted, I remember the old cartoon series. That was cool. Mm, yeah, I was obsessed with it when I was a kid. Didn't you know Bill and Ted's excellent adventure? Best friends forever. That, that was great. <laughs> uh, number eight is, uh, and I, I, this is, I think this is a brilliant film. Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home. <laughs> 
<laughs> You're not wrong. It is a great. We film. would not have allowed that to be discussed during this. It's not a, a cerebral enough uh, movie, but I absolutely love it. The thing is, as someone who's only ever seen Star Trek through the movies. You know, for me, this was yeah. the real introduction of, of Captain Kirk. Like, you know, you see him in the first three Star Trek films, and he's kind of past his best, you know, he's in a midlife crisis. Yeah. In this one, he's just able to have some fun. Well, like, it's it's more of a fish-out-of-water comedy than anything, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> or I suppose in this case, it's a whale-out-of-water film. Oh, because you yeah. think that the, uh, like, if someone said to me, all right, the story for this movie is a crew, like this giant space rod comes out, Sends it back in time to get a pair of whales. Like, I could not have imagined liking it, but it's so funny. It's just, yeah, I think it's a fantastic film. It's even got this nice little political commentary about the uh, yeah. the Cold War getting tucked in there. Great stuff. Um, number seven, Time Crimes. Officially better from Predestination. So we'll see Screen Rant. Um, Screen Rant is, of course, a website that uh, on the day Chadwick Boseman died, their tribute article was an article about the ways in which Black Panther 2 could still be made. So <laughs> Screen Rant is not my favourite website. Um, but but this is a good list so far. Number six, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Oh, Christ, come oh, on. That's a stretch, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I genuinely quite liked that film. I, um, would you say it's better than Predestination? Or Sam? <laughs> no, oh, or Definitely not. Or Bill and Ted. Um, <laughs> Definitely not. Uh, I suppose like it was the sort of maturation one for Harry Potter. You know, it's when it becomes more of a a thing that older teenagers could oh, like yeah, rather definitely. being a kids thing. Did the uh, change in director definitely helped as well? Yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's not. I mean, the other thing with this is with Harry Potter, the time travel rules just irritate the hell out of me. You know, it's um, if you're going to bring it in as a plot device, it baffles me that that's the thing the characters choose to do. You know. <laughs> yeah. um, like, you know, Hermione uses it to do twice the classics, and you're like, this thing's always existed in the universe, and this is how to use it. But, um, you know, just go back and kill Voldemort, stop him. Anyway, um, number five, a movie I have not seen, it is Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's fine. It's, it's a decent enough action movie, but... That's all it is, uh, it? I would say it is better than Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so better than Harry Potter the Prison of Asgard, we is it as good as the Voyage Home? Nah, nah, I, <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, number four, I have seen really good film, Twelve Monkeys. God, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's one that's it's been a long time since I watched it, but it's one of them where you see it on telly, you just end up watching it all the way through. Number three is Looper. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> I've seen it once. Um, it, it probably wasn't as clever as I was expecting it to be, to be honest. I'd read a lot about it before I'd seen it, and I just thought it was fine. Like, the concept's good. Um, but I just, I don't know, left me a little cold, I guess. Something that pissed me off about it was um, the rules of time travel that it plays quite fast and loose with, whereby um, Gordon Joseph Levitt, because Bruce Willis is going to be the older version of him, which would be quite disappointing, I reckon, if he was like Gordon <laughs> Joseph Levitt, right? The, um, 
or uh, the or Joseph Gordon Levitt. Sorry, not Gordon Joseph. Right, the way that he's able to hurt Bruce Willis, his future self, by hurting himself in the present doesn't work because the injury should already be on Bruce Willis hmm. if he's yeah, a future it's... incarnation. That irritated the hell out of me. But based on this, you can see why Ryan Johnson got offered Star Wars. You know, it was a it was a uh, small scale but very good sci-fi action film, I thought. And uh, the concept is ingenious. Number two is Back to the Future. And number one, anyone want to hazard a guess? Captain kind of thing. I'll, give you, I'll give you a clue. It's slightly, Avengers. it's slightly more action-y than any of the other ones. Um, End game. The Terminator. Oh, oh yeah. Shit. <laughs> yes. The Terminator is obviously fantastic. Maybe we'll do a Terminator episode at some point, so don't really want to go like I'm sure we'll talk of this at some at some point so you know if I could go back in time I'd go back about 30 seconds and punch myself in the face for not getting that <laughs> it's one of my all-time favorite movies I don't know why the hell I'd... <laughs> I, guess, I think yeah. it's because you don't necessarily think of of jumping in future nah, do you do you nah. know what I mean it, uh, that's yeah. what I think that's what we were thinking of it's something where you actually like for instance with Bill and Ted you're actually physically going yeah, I guess you know, a lot of those films, you do get them going from A to B to here to there to sort out mm-hmm. so and so. But with that one, your time travelling is done right at the beginning of the film, isn't it? So. It's, it's such a phenomenal idea. And the world building, I think, is excellent. And I mean, I prefer the second one, which for me is pound for pound, maybe the best action film pretty much ever made. Oh, um, absolutely. The first one is, uh, is stellar as well, you know, great movies. I- I think um, with with that, you know, Terminator and Alien, like the, the styles in which it's more of like a story building and sort of setting it all up, they're very similar. And then obviously Terminator Two and Aliens is the, are the more action sequels. It, it it's sort of like there's that sort of link, I suppose, between them. I mean, I personally prefer um, Terminator Two to Terminator One, but I also prefer Aliens to Alien. So I think, um, yeah, I'm a sequels guy for these. Uh, <laughs> I like both me, but, you know, obviously one and two on both of them, but I'm more of a OG. Uh, the first one's for me. What about yourself, Jim? You've got a strong preference in Terminator, Terminators and Alien films? It's like, uh, well, with a- a- Aliens is my favourite out of those, definitely. But with the Terminator films, it's like uh, asking which of me kids I like the best, really. <laughs> uh, both I, I love equally. Uh, obviously, Terminator 2 is more action-orientated, a bit more bombastic. And you've got the massive set pieces, which I actually saw at the cinema a couple of years back when they did the um, 3D 4K restoration of it. That was... Incredible. In fact, um, it was a double bill. Yeah, uh, both Terminator and Terminator 2 as well, because I think they showed them just before Dark Fate released. Mm. Um, so that was a cracking night. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I think the first one pips it for me. Just just the, the, the whole idea of it is brilliant. I was fascinated with it for so long. Um, again, like when... The, the DVD was released, you had all the special features, you had the original concepts and uh, drafts and stories and interviews with James Cameron about you know what was going to happen and so on, things I had to drop. I was just so fascinated with all the mythology and everything surrounding it. It's something that has stuck with me for a long time. You know, I personally thought Dark Fate was pretty decent as well. I mean, it's um, 
To say it's the third best maybe does it something of a disservice. <laughs> it's a bit like, you know, because it's like, well, the others were not good. You know, it's a bit like a bit like uh, saying it's, a, it's the best one since the last good one, like Jurassic World had or Force Awakens had or Star Trek uh, had or Rocky mm. Balboa had. And it's got that sort of cinematic greatest hits package bit of feel to it. Like, you know, it's not... Like if someone said, "All right, well, what's your favorite album by a band?" You don't say the greatest hits, and no one yeah. will ever, <laughs> and no one will ever say that their favorite Terminator film. Or you shouldn't say their favorite Terminator film is uh, is Terminator Dark Fate. But at the same time, it was it was really it was still very enjoyable, and it was quite emotional seeing uh, seeing uh, uh, Arnie uh, back on the screen again with Linda Hamilton. It was uh, yeah, it was very nice. Yeah, it was fun. Um... I even like the bits where it sent itself up. I, I, I thought it was a very entertaining film. I liked the new characters. I, I enjoyed where it went. Um, but yeah, it's, as you say, it was basically nothing more than a greatest hits package, pretty much uh, like Genesis before it, which I must admit I enjoyed as well. Yeah, I thought Genesis was far better than Fear 4. Fuck it. I'm also a fan of Genesis. <laughs> I'm fine. Um, uh, just to finish off, if I may, I'd like to ask a quick question about time travel within within Endgame. So recently, me and my wife watched every one of the Marvel movies. We didn't we didn't include the TV shows because, frankly, we don't have time. And secondly, they've all been cancelled anyway, so it doesn't, doesn't really matter. But something that irritated me about it is bringing in this one timeline thing actually makes previous movies worse because it means. That uh, the bit where Peggy's in hospital in um, Captain America 2 and she's like, oh, yeah, you know, got together with a guy who was rescued by Captain America, right? That doesn't make sense to the person she's with was Captain America in that. But also, if that is what's happening and she's ju- and it's just her dementia playing up there, we still have Captain America lusting after his own niece. Right, and that's something that uh, really seems worse in retrospect once you've got uh, once you, you know once you've established that there's a single timeline for it. And I thought that was a slightly frustrating part of the movie. I didn't like the idea of uh, all right, well, this is, there is just this one timeline because then you go, well, what about the, the multiple timelines that were introduced previously in the same movie? You know, like uh, and also how how does Captain America manage bring all do bring the soul stone back either mm. uh, basically i enjoy the time travel element up until the point where they bring the only the one universe they can have the, the joe biden lookalike version of cap at the end <laughs> uh, my apologies to anyone listening who's not seen it by the way <laughs> well i mean if you haven't seen it at this point you're really interested in it to begin with but um to counterpoint that isn't it explained that everything is just one straight line. So unlike, say, your Back to the Future, your Terminator rules, you can't go back in time and change anything. If you go back in time, well, say, for example, uh, Tilda Swinton's explaining about the Infinity Stones. Take one of them out. You're creating a new branch in this timeline, which can lead on to dark things, which is why at the end, Captain America has to go back and take everything back to where they got them from, basically. Mm. Um, and obviously there is a bit of a plot hole with that with the uh, with the soul stone for example but yeah so everything that's happened up to this point has happened as it's happened there's been no interference from going back in time and so on 
them going back in time is still on this straight line as such. Yeah, but the thing is, like, <laughs> but he's still able to, uh, because he goes, like, oh, Tilda Swinton mentions all oh, about yeah, there's multiple universes, and you, you shaft yeah. our universe when you take these stones, because the thing is, because she can't, because she's died in a previous movie, then, uh, you know, she, this is a different version of her of it speaking here. Well, a, a, a version of her that's not died yet, but acknowledges that she's part of a different reality. But if you take the soul stones, our reality becomes vulnerable whilst yours isn't. But at the same time, it bothers me that that, that uh, you can't really... If she's acknowledging we're in a different reality from mm. you, then you can't square the pegger for only being one of them. And I think, yes. I think the, scene, the last scene just struck me as a symbolic scene that didn't really make sense when you stuck it in the rest of the rules created yeah. the film. Yeah, I, yeah obviously him going back from that point isn't going to affect it, isn't it? So it's only, is it probably plugging a gap in a possible alternative reality? But yeah, that that's a plot hole there, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> it's still something I immensely enjoyed. I had a blast with that film. So, you know, it's probably the, uh, other than Iron Man 3, it's probably the one of those uh, series I enjoyed the most. Um, and I, it's probably about this time last year when I watched the entire series from uh, beginning to end as well. But, I upgraded yeah. it. It went from being a three and a half star to being a four star for me on my rewatch. So it's a better film with having seen, like, if someone said to me, so I, took, <laughs> so I watched Endgame, I'd say, well, yes, we have to watch the other 22 films yeah. <laughs> you know I, I, um, like it yeah, has it, half it, a star on <laughs> like plot holes and everything inside it just felt like a, a, a big big reward for getting through everything that's yeah. come up to this point like you've watched all of these now here's a big self-congratulatory treat at the end of it all and yeah. it's just it's probably too long but I can sit through it at any time Speaking of treats coming at the end, Steph, you must have been absolutely thrilled for the last five minutes. <laughs> absolutely. You know I have no interest in Marvel whatsoever. The last time I watched a Marvel film was the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man. That is as far as, you know... I can see why you were being put off there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, kind of big stuff, though. I've not seen any. It's not my flavour. Not my bag. Hello, folks. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this show as much as we've, of course, enjoyed recording it. Right, guys? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so until next time, we shall bid you all a fond farewell and goodbye. Bye. 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 Check out horrorcultfilms.co.uk Audio.